Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is a not a diving podcast. And thanks to all of you for your great feedback. So last week's episode with Cassie, that was a really fun conversation to have. I always say that, but I always genuinely do have fun having these conversations. And um, previous to that, the one with Chris Leaving was also great. And um, I've got a really good conversation for you today and I've already recorded next week's one too so I'm uh, super excited about these episodes that are coming up. This one in particular though, let's just talk about that because uh, we never announce guests in advance. So um, yeah, today we have Rich McGuinness who is an extremely prominent person in live electronic music, live music generally, but I think particularly electronic music, clubs and festivals in the UK. He is from Belfast originally, Northern Ireland, but he's done the majority of his work in the northwest of England, so in Liverpool and in Manchester. He is synonymous with Chibuku Shake Shake and Circus, both in Liverpool, but also the Warehouse Project, which is just an extremely high-profile thing and very well-known internationally, and I'm sure all of you would have heard of it. And that runs in Manchester. Um, I've played there a good few times, and I can tell you that it's just an awesome event run by a bunch of awesome people. So Rich works on that. He's uh, by, by no means the only person that works on it. It's a big team, um, and Rich is um, an important cog in the wheel, but by no means the only cog. Um and um, he has just got a yeah a vast wealth of experience. He's worked on Cream in Ibiza and lots and lots of other stuff, which we get into. He's got many insights, um, which we explore throughout the course of what is a pretty long conversation, actually. I think we're over two hours on this one. So looking forward to getting into it. I will be back after the conversation as usual bit more news on my my thoughts about how we're going to move forward with the podcast in terms of getting some support, getting some uh, some financial input into the running of the show, 
haven't made any hard decisions yet, but my my thinking has evolved a little bit on that. But in the meantime, you can support us by leaving us a review or a rating. I always say this, but I mean, it genuinely does help. I always say that too. But if you like what we're doing here, then that is the most direct way you can express that. So hit that five-star button on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you are. You can also join us in the Discord if you want to chat about anything that's going on on the show, any suggestions you might have, any comments you might have about anything we talk about. So hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. You can get in there via that. There's a Not A Diving podcast channel on there. And also follow the Spotify playlist, which contains much of the music we chat about on the show and is just a general good way of following us. All the episodes are in there too. So anyway... Without further delay, here is Rich McGuinness. Rich McGuinness, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm very well, thank you. Um, whereabouts are you? In the uh, I'm in deepest Cheshire at the moment, um, getting ready for a weekend. My daughter's coming to stay. Um, so we've got a fun weekend planned, a rare weekend off. So... What have you got at the moment in the way of shows going on? Um, I guess there's a, there's a lot going on. I guess we've got, um, we did have a lot of stuff planned for Jubilee weekend, but we actually decided to pull back, which I think in hindsight, with the way things are at the moment in the UK, was a, was a good idea. Um, I've got a big L row, two big L row days in Liverpool next week with Yusef. Um, and then the week after that, we've got Parklife in Manchester, which is which has been sold out <laughs> since about February. So I've kind of... Um, emotionally detached from it a little bit but we're getting getting psyched up and ready for that so that's that's the next big one yeah i mean park life is like well that's got to be one of the biggest ones of the year right for you guys and for, for anyone in the uk i suppose yeah it's the big it's the biggest show we do yeah 100 it's um you know somehow evolved from i think uh, sasha posted yesterday it's 12 years since we started and we did twenty thousand people on plat um on platfields park um and we did the last ever kind of ian brown show um, before the roses reformed, I know you can't really mention Ian Brown these days, but um, back then it was kind of acceptable. <laughs> but um, but yeah, uh, and that, yeah, that was the last kind of Manchester show he did before, before the roses reformed, and that was the first weekend. And we had glorious weather, and and then we bounced into a second weekend, the year you know the the the, the following year, and we had again glorious weather, and it just it just kind of bounced from there really. So. Um, it's evolved into um, what people say is probably one of the biggest non-camping shows in Europe. Quite phenomenal, really, when we think about it in, in retrospect. Yeah, I mean, I've I've enjoyed it. The, I, I don't know. I think I've, I've maybe, maybe done it once. Is it once that I've done it, or maybe twice? I can't remember. It was a, it was a while. You've ago, definitely anyway. done it a few times. Yeah, I, I, I remember scooping you out of a change room at one point. But um, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I remember. Actually, I remember that because I, I'd, I'd actually come directly from Bergheim. I remember that. That's what it was. I yeah. Play, I, I'd played Bergheim and then got straight on a plane and, and I remember being in an, an appalling state that day. I was thinking, <laughs> definitely not my finest hour. Actually. But not, but, um, all, you know, not, not badly behaved, of course. It was um, all fine. Well, you know, I, I do try and, you know, keep a level of decorum, uh, even in my darker moments. <laughs> We've all been there. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. Anyway, so I wanted to, I wanted to start off just by asking you a bit about you know, as you, you know, you just mentioned actually the state of the UK at the moment, and obviously, uh, you know, I'm sure everyone who's listening to this knows what you mean by that in terms of like what's happened in the last couple of years. But uh, can you just give us an idea of like 
how it is now. I mean, obviously, we've we've you know the restrictions have been off for a little, a little while now, and I think probably quite a lot of people think just assume that everything's back to normal, but you know that's definitely not the case. So, can you just give us an idea of um, the kind of environment that as a promoter you're kind of operating in just at the moment? I don't think there's actually words to describe what's going on at the moment, other than complete and utter pandemonium. But uh, you know, just over a year ago in April. Um, Yusuf and I did the the ERP show for the for the for DCMS um, and the government in Liverpool, which was obviously widely publicised. But um, that was the kind of start of like right, that was the first show back in the Western Hemisphere. So I think what the event ban kind of got lifted, start of you know um, end of July, start of August, and from that point, really. So sorry, sorry. If I can just jump in, that's just to clarify that that was a that was a pilot scheme that they did, wasn't it? The pilot the, scheme the for the government, yeah. So we basically were involved with um, uh, the Home Office. Um, uh, sorry, not the Home Office. Um, DCMS, the Cabinet Office, and um, uh, Liverpool City Council in pulling together the uh, the testing protocols, how we were going to work out how the testing was going to work to get people into clubs, what the system was, and all of those things around around that, which, which in retrospect now, because we, we were doing it for so, we've since been doing that system for so long, um, sounds like, oh, well, it was just some LFTs and it was just a bit of the, but at the time, no one actually knew what the hell to do and the government especially didn't know how to handle it. Um, so we, you know, they were literally, they, they had, they pulled out a bunch of um, new, well, literally, there's literally a, a, a government body full of nuclear scientists these super brains that sit down to solve problems and they wheel these these guys into completely um, alien environments to them and they sit them down and go, right, you need to fix this, um, which was quite entertaining for us because obviously we've been putting massive gigs on for years, big raves and festivals and whatever. And all of a sudden you've got some nuclear physicist in there telling you, well, you know, if you do this and this, then that will happen. And we were like, well, that's actually not what happens. It actually works like this. <laughs> And they were like, oh, right, okay. So there was a lot of confusion going on between customer behaviour, um, you know, one-on-one doesn't equal two. It was all kind of very, very, very difficult for them to actually get their heads around. Um, so, yeah, we, 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 we got through all that, and the shows were the shows were unbelievable, very, very emotional for everyone who was involved in them at the time, and the DJs who played, you know, I can't, I can't really describe it. It was, it was sensational, but... So what was what were the venues? For, for we, we were using an old warehouse on the on the on the Bramley on Bram, called Bramley Moor Dock, which is now actually where the Everton Stadium's going um, in Liverpool, which is effectively just a very large warehouse that we could commandeer and build from scratch in the manner in which we needed to do. Because there was a lot of like they were testing the particles in the air, they were doing things like all sorts. They had all these like. Um, Odd devices hanging from the roof and the CCTV, and they were monitoring the movement of people within the room to monitor their behaviour, um, so they could analyse, like you know, where where's the pressure points and where are the people most likely to, you know, when our queuing systems for the bar, um, uh, you know, wh- wh- where's the bottlenecks? Where are people most likely to transmit? Where do we need to put in procedures for? making it safer for people basically but also you know it started at the front door and it started with the testing and it started with the you know the culture and the idea of go and get an lft report it upload it blah 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 blah, blah do all that stuff you know which is all second nature now to people they just they just started doing it because they needed to do it in order for things to open again um but that was it was literally the first one but obviously you can do it you could have done an lft after but the time restrictions opened it was lft but at that point you had to actually go to a testing clinic and get done, get it all done there, and get your result. But I mean, there was lots of other complications in terms of 
we could only sell one ticket per person, which obviously people aren't used to doing. That was one ticket per person, um, and they had to go get your test, and then the the test was then meant to connect to your ticket in a very commas. But we ran into all sorts of problems because they were kind of running before they could walk, and there was a lot of issues around things like, you know, it's one thing to store, you know, there's there's issues around the data storage and how that all works and who's handling the information, and and once you connect someone's um, health information to ticketing information, for example. And if you discriminate someone coming into a venue on the basis of their health, that's a that's a big grey area in terms of human rights and d- d- discriminating right. against someone and saying, well, you can't come in because you're sick. It's like, well, it's not just straightforward. So they kind of, they ran into a lot of problems with that. And I think we, we were getting sued at one point by some... There's these kind of groups out there that chase the government around looking for loopholes to throw things at them. So we got kind of tied up in a lot of that. We got a huge amount of abuse from the kind of, um, well, not the anti-vax mob, but it was kind of just, you know, cosmic cosmic scousers who kind of believed that by introducing any kind of LFT testing or whatever um, for club nights that we were part of some bigger evil plan to mandate... Um, <laughs> COVID passports and we were we were the we were basically the axis of evil. So poor Yusef got an absolute kicking. Um, and obviously I'm a, in the background, but um, you know he got a terrible amount of stick. But you know what? We got through it. The gigs were amazing. Um, the government. So, says- sorry, let me let me just ask you a question. Um, just regarding the actual gigs at the time, like so, there were, um, I take it there were a bunch of sort of government personnel on site administrating all the stuff that you've just no, described. No, no, so no, 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 no. They told us what to do and we delivered it. So basically... Oh, wow. Yeah, really? and, 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 then they, and, then, and then, you know, they, they, they brought all their... They had their scientists and stuff there all monitoring things, do you know what I mean, in terms of... But they came in and set up all their devices and cameras and things. And, and I mean, I, I think I maybe met one of them for five minutes, but they were all kept themselves to themselves. They didn't say very much. Um, uh-huh. And they were all lovely, do you know what I mean? But they're very serious people, do you know what I mean? They weren't, you know weren't interested in Fat Boy Slim, that's for sure. But, um, you know, they were uh, just there to do the job. Um, but the, the the production team that we worked with, a guy called Sam Newson, um, between him and another guy called Eddie Grant, who Eddie's a kind of health and safety expert that we work with on all of our shows. Um, they, they, they basically, between us all, we pulled it together. Basically, Liverpool City Council had a huge part to do with it. And... Um, you know, it all, it all it all came together the week of the show, really. But we had three weeks to, from the minute they told us we were doing it, to deliver the show. So we had to book it, sell it. And you would think we'd be able to sell tickets in the middle of a pandemic when every other nightclub on the planet is shut. It would be pretty easy. But um, people were actually quite nervous about going to clubs. People were right. unsure of what, yes. the testing and how foolproof it would be and what it would be like to be inside. You could only buy one ticket at a time. So people were like, well, if I can't go with my mates, I'm not going. Then you had this, and then there was also like the system that they had where, you know, we had to sell all the tickets, um, but they, they didn't find out if they were going to get in until they got the result, which was the morning of the show. So on the morning of the show, there was going to be this great attrition of anyone who didn't get, wow. you know, so on the morning of the show, maybe there's going to be like 500 refunds or something. So we were caught in this, that we had taken on this like massive financial risk um, of opening that building, which is like hundreds of thousands of pounds, um, to maybe on the day of the show have a thousand people in there per day, which would have ended us especially after such a period of you know we haven't been open for 18 months or whatever a year and a half or something at that point so you know we were kind of financially definitely on the back foot um so it was it was it was it was a lot to deal with in every possible direction um uh, but the aftermath you know after that was it was it was 
it was a phenomenal thing for us. And I think, I think the PR stats said something like 5 billion people globally, um, you know, read about it, heard about it, watched it or whatever. And I think, wow. you know, we were like full page, we were on the front page of the New York Times, we were on the front, you know, interviews in the New Yorker, um, you know, Channel 9 News from Australia to all the big channels in Tokyo. It was just global coverage. I mean, um, it was just not really what we were expecting, I think, at the time when we when we said, yeah, we just kind of just went, look, we've been given this opportunity. Let's just do it. And it all kind of it all kind of came together in the end, but there was definitely some hairy, very hairy moments. Um, there, was, there, was, there was a large um, anti-vax protest in Liverpool on the Saturday, and they were and they were like, "We're coming down. We're going to protest outside. We're coming in. You know, we're going to we're going to rush we're going to rush the doors. You know, I'm like, we got fucking Sven Vath in a, in a in a cab here. Like, what? So it's so it's all going on, and um." Yeah, but, you know, the police were amazing. Um, Liverpool City Council were amazing. And I can actually see all these bodies all working together at that level. It actually was quite interesting to see how it all worked, but they managed to, you know, kept kept the parade or the the protest away. And we we got it away seamlessly, really. And and the the atmosphere and the vibe, I mean, there was people just crying. The the release for everyone, that kind of everyone getting together. And, you know, the the dance floor moment, I think particularly for someone, you know, Lauren Lusong was the DJ he was on earliest on the Friday and there was just this moment where I'd kind of come off the door and I was walking through the warehouse from the back and it's this massive, huge cavernous building and she was kind of playing this kind of deep ambient record as there was like maybe three or four hundred people in who were all standing around, you know, having a drink, kind of waiting for it all to build. And there was this moment, I've got it on my, I've actually got the exact moment on my phone. I, I was filming it on my iPhone when I was walking through and this bass line hit just the first beat of the day, effectively. I can't really, I can't really describe to you the 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 what happened. Basically, everyone just started cheering in this very kind of primal, <laughs> deep primal matter. And then, and then I could see Lauren. It was it was affecting her emotionally. She started to cry. So then she kind of looked at her girlfriend, her, her girlfriend Shan, and Shan started to cry. And then they all, looked, I could see them looking behind them at the people all behind them. They were all in freaking tears. And then I mean, next year I'm crying, and I'm looking at the people. I'm in the I'm on the dance floor, and I'm looking around me, and everyone's in fucking. And it was like, oh my god, everyone in this room is actually crying. What that? And then next year the record kicks <laughs> wow. in, the record kicks in, and there's just this huge euphoric cheer. And it was, I mean, I can't I can't really describe what that felt like. It was just phenomenal. But Lauren wow. Lauren, Lauren had that moment, you know, um, and it was it was a lot for everyone to take in. Fair enough. I mean, she'll probably remember that for the rest of her life as will you I mean I'm just getting goosebumps just just listening to you talk about it yeah well look dance, dance music can you know dance stores can can create that you know those moments and you combine all the the social and um, political you know all those aspects of the pandemic that were going on and then it builds towards a moment like that it's kind of you know it was it was kind of appropriate I think that, that a large rave in a warehouse in Liverpool got to Got to bring everyone together, do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, the I mean, the way you've just described that sounds like it was a extremely positive experience, like all round, including like the input of the, the authorities and all that. But obviously, like the the kind of experience in its totality of the pandemic, you know, definitely wasn't <laughs> wasn't positive. No, I guess I guess I mean I guess back to your original question: how, what, where, what's, where are we now? And I guess it started with that. It started there and. 
What yeah, followed yeah. was an unprecedented feeding frenzy for promoters um, of all sorts, young, new, old, whatever, people being around the block, different segments of the market, different things that are out there that, you know, everyone basically just started doing shows. You couldn't get a venue, you couldn't get avails. You're also dealing with, you know, two years of, pardon me, you know, two and a half years of uh, cancellations that have been rebooked. You basically had this massive layering of, of, of gigs from August right the way through. I guess I did my last, my last rescheduled show that I did was only a month or two ago with Camel Fat in Liverpool. Um, that was in April and that had been bounced from, you know, a year and a half before or whatever. But um, nationally and internationally, I guess, the, the, the effect of that is that you just had this kind of, ridiculous battery of shows happening of people that have bought tickets so you know, this kind of phenomenon of people sitting at home back in uh this time last year effectively going oh my god this is happening i'm going to buy a ticket and they're racking up all these ticket sales on their credit cards I'm not really thinking about the logistics of how am i going to get there and are my friends going and all these other things that, that contribute towards people actually turning up to a show and then what you find as a result of that was um massive ticket sales Huge drop off. So you'd you'd think you had a sold out show, and fifty percent of the crowd would turn up, and that would be because they've either can't make it, forgot they bought the ticket so long ago, um, ongoing COVID anxiety, um, or they had COVID, or there was further restrictions, or there were you know it was just you're just dealing with one thing after another, after another, after another. So that mo- that moment of thinking, well, I've sold all these tickets, that's great, and then you were having these half empty shows, and it was kind of like. It was just, we, we got rid of one set of problems and then we had to deal with a whole new set of problems, which were, in many respects, equally as intense. So I guess people went from August right the way through. We had a phenomenal season at the Warehouse Project, which kind of didn't really have as much of the drop-off because I guess it's talent-led, and heavily talent-led, so a lot of the shows were sort of kind of unmissable. But definitely a lot of other shows and a lot of other promoters I spoke to were opening the doors to very often less than 50% of, 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 of ticket sales. But then I think people's, you know, pe- people basically partied till Christmas the whole way through. Then the Omicron thing happened and that threw everything out, out the door again. And then I think end of January, I remember we did a big show with Peggy Goo in Liverpool and that felt like a big moment. And then after that, the mood changed. So I think the credit card bill started coming in. I think the um, the hangover of people basically partying from August to January um, started to kick in. Um, I think the realize uh, the mood changed also with the you know the the Russian invasion in Ukraine. Um, the mood changed. You know the news was just kind of this onslaught of these, these terrible atrocities that were happening um, all across Ukraine, and uh, um, and then that combined with you know the cost of living crisis that's on incoming. All of these things then hit. I think people's want and need to be spending all this money that they have been spending on on, on tickets. So we're kind of in a place now. Well, we were very lucky with Park Life in that we 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 had a very strong lineup, but it sold out pretty quickly. Um, but I and I know from speaking to everyone, you know, other promoters at the minute, everyone's struggling. You know, I think very very difficult because the panic in the media around the about well, it's not it's not panic in the media. It's it's very real for people. Um, the cost of living stuff in the UK is just 
wildly out of control and yeah. yeah i mean absolutely like the the inflation thing is 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 absolutely just just rolling and seemingly well very potentially only just get going let me just go about something you just said there though um which piqued my interest which was the like the influence of like the ukraine thing i mean do you find as a promoter that those sorts of kind of like i guess it's news stories really in the way that we're talking about with the audience the audience's kind of experience of that kind of sort of geopolitical event do you, do you find that has a significant effect on, on what you guys do promoting parties? I think that, um, I mean, obviously I grew up in Northern Ireland, so it's um, definitely an effect over there. But um, I think over, I think, yeah. I think in the UK, it's not just about that. It's about the mood. It's about the national mood. It's about, you know, what is the state? You know, we had to launch Lovebox, I remember. Um, and it ended up by coincidence being the day of the Brexit vote or something. And it was just like, you know, freaking nightmare because you're trying to get everyone excited about summer <laughs> and no one's interested because we're making a balls of everything it's kind of like um it's about getting you know launching a major show like you know or or, or any kind of big operation like that into a, a barrage of social media negative social media and and media in general it makes it impossible to communicate with people really um and i think if the mood is wrong or your timing's wrong, you know, we've we've hit it both ways. We've hit it when it's good and it's you see the results and we've got it we've got well, not necessarily we've got it wrong, but we've definitely landed in situations where the news has been unpredictable and we've landed on top of something and there's just nothing you can do about it. And it, it definitely grossly affects you know, a lot of these shows can live or die depending on what happens in the first week, you know. Um right. and it either's gonna it's either gonna spark out and go really well or you're gonna to have to roll your sleeves up, and it's it's a it's a you know you're in the trenches to the to the day of the show, or it doesn't happen. You know um, that's the reality of it. Um, you can always tell straight away. Okay, let me ask you a question about that. Like, what what are the criteria for for cancelling a show based on ticket sales? Uh, well, it depends. What's the criteria? What is the criteria um, based on ticket sales? It depends. I mean, on, on by the, the the scale of the financial loss, because we've certainly not cancelled lots of shows that could have been cancelled, but. Um, I think that the mood has kind of changed now. And I don't think, you know, a lot of the cost is driven by the talent, you know. And if the talent mm. isn't selling the tickets, then there's an issue, you know. And sometimes the talent has to realise that their agents maybe pushed it too far or they've pushed it too far or their management's pushed it too far. And they have to realise that they have to take a step backwards to take a step forwards. And very often it's not in anyone's interest to do a show where the promoter bankrupts themselves and... <laughs> the, 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 the act ends up well there's some quite a lot there's plenty of people plenty of acts out there who don't mind when the, bank, the, the, the promoter bankrupts themselves but I think the you know the longevity of the act the longevity, longevity of the relationship with the promoter you know it's quite sensible and pragmatic to go hang on a minute let's not do this everyone's you know let's either refund reschedule find a better date or let's scale it back let's let's do a smaller show you know there's 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 50 ways to fix it. I mean, before you get to cancellation, but you need you need an agent and manager and act here who are pragmatic and, and have got a long term goal. But there's equally there's plenty of people who are out there for the smash and grab who just want to go. You're paying us, and that's it. And you know, that's a very short term view in terms of. I guess I guess every show has to has to mean something, and every show has to be has to be a positive experience for the punters, for the promoter, for the you know for the for the for the act where possible yeah i mean you're, you're right it is a really short-term view and it's like it can be extremely damaging for an artist's career 
to have a like a bad show in a key market it's is some you know it can take years to recover from that yeah is the reality but but then but then you also as you say you have you know management and and booking agents who aren't actually interested in that long term quite a lot of the time i mean it's obviously not true for everyone there's some great art some great managers and some great booking agents out there but it is you're right it's, it's not uncommon no i mean we've we've had some very difficult conversations over the years with people um and i think you know the the it's about knowing when to push and when to pull, and sometimes you've you know you've got the wind behind you, and you can you can you can do these incredible things. But staying at home one weekend rather than going and forcing someone to do a show that's just not working, and ending up having to paper a show and give tickets out and run massive guest lists and all, just to make the show look busy to keep an act happy, you're actually not doing the act a favour. You're actually you you're creating a bigger problem with this kind of expectation of everything's okay well you're building that expectation on sand you know it's going to fall away at some point and probably quicker than they probably quicker than they expect you know and you, you know that's probably half the reason a lot of these acts have got huge mental health problems you know because they're living in a bubble that's managed for them by their management and their their agents and once the money starts flowing then their their relationships with the world and their, everything around them changes you know and the, some of them don't live in reality at all but yeah, well, I mean, <laughs> that's that's music, isn't it, right? Isn't it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the music industry in a nutshell. Let me ask you one more question about um, what's happening now, though. Like, just regarding inflation, because obviously, uh, like, like headline CPI is what is what is it eight percent or something? But like, but actually, drilling down into you know business cost inflation rates in certain like you know commodities and, and, and other aspects of it can be way higher than that. So, like, how has that affected you, and how is that? feeding into like like ticket prices for example and you know t- tell me about that side of it in in the past well, and since since this inflation thing has like kicked off in the last few months well in a gas you know on festivals and stuff the cost of putting a festival on that these days is probably up about 30 percent, which is yeah. which is massive um and i think this is where the crunch is coming for a lot of people this summer is because you know you have this huge um so i'm just deviating from inflation here for a second but you had this huge kind of gold rush last year and a lot of the younger promoters were like this is brilliant. This is really easy. We can do this. So they've, what have they done? They've doubled down for 2022. And you'll see in London, for example, everyone's, all these kids, they've got shows on left, right and centre and it's all. But the problem is they booked these shows and they've costed them before the inflation things come in. So they put the ticket price out and it's all kind of set in stone. And yeah, sure, they can move things up and move things around. But when, you're, when your production cost goes up 30%, and that's 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 a extinction level event that's not good um but then also when you have when the tide goes out and you have a you know a fallback in ticket sales because of all the other things we just discussed there's a biting point there your 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 break even's high and your tickets are low and that's it's it's not good it's not going to be i think there's going to be a lot of casualties down there particularly in london i don't see as many shows in the north but london just seems to be utterly saturated with people getting very very excited um and the market's not meeting them. You know, it seems to be that things have pulled back. But I think also it's still, you know, a lot of the chat at the minute is, is that that there's going to be a big hockey stick and the people's spending spending habits have changed. The demand is still there, but the spending habits have changed and they're buying last minute because they don't want to plan because they might go on holiday or they might not or, you know, that's what's dictating things. But I guess we'll see, you know, we get to September and, and I, think there's, I think there's going to be some huge casualties. But in terms of the inflation aspect of it, you know, the, the smart operators and the bigger operators are, are are able to lock in production deals and say, well, hey, we're doing X number of shows this year. If you want the work, here's here's the deal and get it get it locked early. But the people that hesitated are the ones that are um, are the ones that are you know and, and are probably still experiencing 
constantly increasing costs. Do you know what I mean? Um, and that's definitely going on. As so, well. so, so, sorry. Have you have you guys taken that that approach then? The the, the locking in over a certain period of time. Yeah, yeah, your- yeah. And and you can do that with you know you can do that with breweries. You can do that with alcohol sales. You know you can do that with various things. You can lock in longer term deals that are in some part um, inflation proof. But eventually, you know your deal is going to run out and the price is going to change. But it gives yeah. you some stability in the short term. Do you know what I mean? And I guess by that token, then then your your ticket prices have presumably remained uh, remain fairly stable. Then, in, in re- 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 reasonably, yeah, reasonably. Um, I th- you know, I think, um, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think anything's taken a huge jump. Um, you know, every year we try really hard to keep things down because naturally there's a there's a want and a need to push things forward all the time. Which, sorry, in terms of content and lineups and. Let's do this. It's going to be you know this production. It's going to be amazing. But that always feeds into the bottom line and uh, or into the ticket price. And and then there's you know there's just a natural expectation sometimes that the, the price will go up. But we, you, as a promoter, you you want to be offering. And we've always that might not be apparent to some people on the outside, but we're always thinking about value and we're thinking about well, we've got a lot of shows to sell. They all can't be premium tickets. And and there's different 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 parts of you know, the world that we, we operate in that, that are completely value, you know, orientated and and that is also an important part of what we do. It's an important part of the culture. It's an important part of being able to work across different genres and scenes and things. And you have to, you have to be, you have to kind of be aware of that really. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, I want to talk about your, your, uh, your career in its entirety because you've done all kinds of things in, in this area of the business but before we get into that um could you just give us a i mean we've you've you've, uh alluded to in what we've just been talking about about the various events that you're involved with but can you just give us a kind of overview of what you do now in in the industry what's what's your job in the industry in in a little bit of detail just so people can have a a bit more of a bird's eye view of it kind of complicated i guess we on a day-to-day basis i guess i mean i'm in at the whereas project and i work with sam candle there um and Sasha, uh, I've been involved from the very start as a partner and founder, um, and we book and promote and run those shows, um, and have done since I think it's what fifteen years now. Um, and in parallel with that, obviously Parklife Festival. But before all that, um, I um, was based in Liverpool. Um, I run a, run a kind of well-known club night called Shibuku Shake Shake, which is still we're still actually doing the odd party now and again, but it's been running twenty-two years. We had a big kind of twentieth anniversary celebration last year, with um, which has been postponed through the pandemic. Um, with disclosure, um, and that that's a club night that kind of started around about the same time that Fabric did, um, and we started it with like you know forty quid, a couple of our mates, room above a pub, and it kind of escalated. Oh, there's you suffering. Um, sorry, um, um, it escalated pretty quickly at the time. The Super Club thing in Liverpool, obviously with Cream and. Everything was a, was was very dominant at that point, but the the mood had changed. I think really the the and it's no disrespect to Cream, but what they were doing had gone from you know in the, in the mid to the early nineties. They were kind of it was a very credible um, house club. Do you mean? And they were they were they were booking um, they they booked everyone. You know they, they booked them. You know Frankie Knuckles, Tony. You know all all of the, all of the great. They booked everyone that was to book. And then I guess they'd gone through the Oakenfold. Residency phase, which even in itself, in terms of a, a moment in dance music, was just a phenomenal, phenomenal thing. But the mood had changed. Um, I think really they'd kind of not run out of steam, but I think they'd run out of direction. Um, 
And I think some of the musical choices that they were making, the music became very hard. Gatecrasher had become a big thing. They were trying to compete with Gatecrasher when they probably didn't need to because they were a much bigger brand, really, globally. And it kind of created this... We were all students there and hanging out and having a lovely time, but we were into drum and bass. We were into... We were going to No Faking. We were going to hit these hip-hop shows. We were kind of into everything. And my musical kind of experience was always kind of... When I was younger, was kind of always informed by Charles Peterson's radio show because it was the only thing that was... It was this kind of, you know, in those days when he was doing the Thursday night on, on, on Radio 1, it was this really eclectic, kind of quite, in those days, relatively club-oriented club music as well, whereas now the Saturday show's a bit more, more left-field jazz. But, um, so we kind of wanted something else, and Shibuka kind of kicked off, and it gave, us, gave me an opportunity when we moved to the, the Arts Club, well, what's now the Arts Club in those days, it was called The Mask. It was like a three-room three room venue. It gave us the opportunity to basically... You know, book house and techno in one room, book some hip hop and drum bass in the other, and then book something really weird in room three, and then the next week completely switch it around and lead with a drum and bass headliner and book something. You know, just basically we just totally mixed it up all of the time, and the weirder we made it, people loved it, um, and we had a very, very, very successful run. Don't get me wrong, we didn't make any money, but we had a lovely time, and we met a lot of people, forged a lot of very important relationships um, with acts and artists that stand us in great stead today. Um, and from that, I'm kind of about four or five years into Shibuku. I'd known Yusef for, since we were all hanging out at Cream um, since in the early 90s, and um, sorry, mid-90s, and he had decided, he came, he actually tried to, get, he'll never admit this, um, but he tried to get into Shibuku one night and couldn't, <laughs> couldn't get in. And I think just, just Yusef's sort of general um, competitive nature Decided, well, I'm not having that. And couldn't get, there's no, there was no phone reception in the venue in those days, so um, he couldn't get hold of me. He couldn't get in. He got turned away. And um, he came and picked me up for a roast about two weeks later. And he said, oh, we're going to get a roast on Sunday. I was like, yeah, cool. I'm starting a new club. And I went, oh, how are you? And he said, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's called Circus. And I was like, oh, fuck, here we go. He's going <laughs> to, he's going to, because he had cream behind him and all, you know, and he was, in, you know, this huge international touring DJ with all these relationships. And I was like, He's just going to wipe out what we're doing here completely. Because we were booking like DJ Pierre and Marshall Jefferson, and you know, there was definitely a crossover of of stuff that we wanted to book and he wanted to book. And then, really weirdly, Cream Yusuf went on like a three week holiday to Egypt or somewhere. He hadn't been on holidays for for years, so he kind of really turned his phone off. Didn't really kind of engage with anyone. And this is all kind of well pre social media as well. And Cream closed randomly, just closed one day. And the same day, Garland's, the nightclub, burned to the ground. And it was just this weird moment in time where I remember driving over the, um, driving over Edge, coming, coming into Edge Lane in Liverpool, there's a kind of, in the motorway, kind of, you, you can see the city as you come in. I was listening to the radio, and the first statement was on the radio was, Cream's closed, and a statement from James Barton. And then the next news segment was, and Garland's has burned to the ground. And I was thinking, hang on a minute. That only leaves us. <laughs> what the hell is going? <laughs> what the hell is going on? So all of a sudden, we just we were all, already gathering pace in Liverpool, um, and and I had to ring Yusef like a week later. I hadn't heard from him, and I said, so "What are you going to do now?" Because he was resident at Cream, and I said, "What are you going to do now that you know Cream shut?" He was like, "What?" I was like, "Yeah, Cream." <laughs> he, he's like, "Yeah, Cream shut," and he's like, "His agent, no one from the club had reached out to him to say, by the way, your weekly gig is is gone. Like we've shut the club." Um, he was absolutely raging. So we basically decided we'll do circus together. And 
we scrabbled it together and we did our first show with um, MYNC Project um, on the like on the 14th of September, 20 years ago, this September coming. And that, it, well, it, we just, within within a year, we were hosting Essential Mixes and we were, you know, we were booking all these, we were booking Sasha and all these amazing DJs that we'd always wanted to book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the rest is history, right? I mean, I've, you've just zoomed through that. I want to go, I want to go through it in a bit more detail um, later on because I want to go back a little bit further and just do this in a slightly more forensic way. But yeah, so, so basically what you're saying is you've got your finger in just many pies, particularly in the Northwest, right? So yeah, and then we've, we've so there was Circus in Shibuku and then the Warehouse Project kind of, we, yeah, the relationships all kind of melded together. And then I had done a large rave with Sasha and Sam and Dave Vincent um, under the banner of Travel Gathering um in Anc- right. in in Ancoats for about 15,000 people um and that was a phenomenal gig it was like we had Sneak and Derek Carter back to back and like Laurent Garnier and Groove Mad and Jeff Mills and Groove Rider and Scratch Pervert I mean it, random with the Rapture that New York post punk band did it and then like all these random it was just a phenomenal gig um to be involved in and that kind of actually probably set the blueprint for the Warehouse project in many respects right what so what what year was that was that mid 2000s then sort of I honestly can't remember now. I think it's like 2004. If the if the Rapture were playing, yeah, it must have been, yeah. 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 And then it all kind of kicked off, yeah. And then I guess in other stuff that we do, um, I do a lot of work with um, a company called, well, I did a lot of work with a company called Mama, which owned Global Gathering, which I booked for years. Um, and then Lovebox, which, which um, I had a great success with um, for many, many years. Lovebox in London, that is, right? Lovebox in London, yeah. We got to book people like Frank Ocean and Charles Gambino and Naz, but we were also booking loads of house and, you know, it's just, it was just a phenomenal thing. I think we sold it out seven years on the bounce or eight years on the bounce or something. So we had a great run with Lovebox, um, which we haven't really got back to doing since the pandemic. We probably might come back next year, but we um, that was just, a, you know, a huge, huge thing in London to be involved in. Um, so there's that. And then Wilderness Festival, we kind of book a lot of talent across that. Um, been been kind of involved in that, not from the immediate inception of it, but shortly after it started. Is your role within these things mostly in the in the putting putting the lineups together and that kind of creative side of it? Is is that is that right? It's different in each different in each situation. So, for example, in, you know, Sam and I will work on the lineups together in Manchester, but Sam will always, Sam leads very much on the the kind of direction and the marketing and. You know, he has that. He has that amazing experience in Manchester. He ran Sankey's with Sasha beforehand, mm-hmm. so Sam's understanding of that city in terms of week to week. You know, the the sensitivities of when's a good moment to to announce something, or that kind of um, scientific knowledge that you need um, to be successful in a city like Manchester in terms of your competition and the relationship. That's very much their territory. You know, um, but in Liverpool, I'm very much more involved in the production um, in terms of. You know, find the venues. We'll build the production. I'll book the lineups with Yusef. Um, obviously, booked all the Shibuku stuff myself for years. Um, we have a great little team over there, so I'm, I'm kind of it varies over there. Whereas then, you know, Lovebox was straight just straight booking. Do you mean I just I just just did, just did the booking and things like that? So it kind of it changes from situation to situation, but we kind of you get to be a bit of an all rounder eventually after enough years in it. Right. So I want to go back then to. I'll zoom right out and go all the way back. You mentioned that you grew up in Belfast. 
And one of the things that we've been digging into a little bit on the show in recent weeks has been the advent of Acid House and its its effects, its social effects as much as anything else, actually. Um, and obviously Belfast is is notable for its problems, shall we say. Um, and I've, I've read comments of yours um, in the past where you said, well, you attributed to, attributed um, to a certain extent anyway, the... Um, the eventual, maybe not result, maybe resolving is too much of a strong word, but the sort of the, the ebbing of of the problems in, in Belfast and in Northern Ireland anyway, you attributed some of that to the advent of Acid House. I mean, am I reading that correctly? I mean, I, from my perspective growing up in Northern Ireland, it was a huge factor in the softening of relationships in youth culture and in factions of, you know, the areas that I was growing up, it definitely had, you know, I mean, I'll put it like this. I grew up on a hill in the middle of nowhere in, in, in Greystale, and I didn't meet anyone who wasn't um, white or Catholic until I was 16. Right. No one, no one, not one single person. And and it wasn't until I went to secondary school, really, in a mixed town that was kind of more Catholic and Protestant, more Protestant than it was Catholic, that... Um, you just they just didn't mix. I didn't actually realise this until years. I'd basically been, had grown up in an entirely segregated society, and I think it was around about that time we we were we were kind of bunking on the bus to go to Kelly's in Portrush, which you know Belfast was was problematic for clubs because there were so many paramilitaries and so many problems, and of course um, the the culture in Belfast was was suppressed in many respects because of the involvement of. You know, paramilitaries and different aspects of security. So, when you say, let me let me interrupt you there. When you say the culture, do you, are you talking about just sort of club culture and sort of like that liberal aspect? I think, well, I think there's, 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 the club culture in those days would have been, you know, like an old, you know, very much pubs with kind of like your classic 80s nightclub, you know, country discos, that kind of thing. Mm. But when acid house culture exploded in in in, in England and the music, you know, there was, when they have started having those crossover records that you know that were coming out, that were hitting the charts. And then that was then spreading like wildfire, I guess. The cult, you know, in, in, in Belfast, the, I definitely think that, uh, how do I put it? It was very limited. It was kind of all kind of controlled. They weren't allowing it. I mean, the, the, basically the licensing laws there are completely archaic. So anything that was kind of legal um, wasn't very good. And anything that was illegal was getting shut down pretty quickly. Um, but what you found was that Belfast was quite, Quite difficult for people to do anything, but but Kelly's in Port Rush, for example, in those days, pre it being called Lush, w- was this kind of out of time bolt all that people could go to, that wasn't under the kind of focus, strict focus of the kind of the, the authorities in Belfast, and um, they were having it off. So the guy that was running all the parties at Kelly's was a guy called Chris Hurley. Um, Chris was a DJ kind of promoter who was working with the venue at the time. He was the one who was kind of tuned in to all of the London stuff that was happening. So he was bringing over Colin Dale and kind of Paul Oakenfold and the various characters at that stage, which was kind of the basis of how, you know, that kind of acid house moment in in Kelly's Port Rush kind of evolved, really. He was at the basis of all that. And then I guess all the promoters kind of came in and took over and um, a harder music agenda kind of, kind of took control, really. There's Pablo Gorgano, who was kind of having a great time in Belfast. He, he, had a, he had a big radio show, um, which was, you know, when they had the underground record shop and they were putting these kind of like different raves on, like Maysfield Leisure Centre. And there was, you know, there was, all sort, there was all sorts of stuff happening. But for me, really, 
Kelly's um, at that point. And sorry, so so where where is Kelly's? Is out of town? Did you say Kelly's is in Port Rush, right? So that's northwest. So it's sort of on the other side of the other side of Northern Ireland. So it's Belfast is kind of as you look at the map on the right hand side, and Kelly's is northwest, top left. So how how far is it, how long does it take? About an, about an hour and fifteen drive, an hour and twenty minute drive. But it's you know it's right, you know right. you know it's a fair bit away. But it's kind of like a it's like a seaside resort. You know it's kind of lots of surfers and it's a very beautiful part of the world. Um, but they have this kind of big golf golf um, golf hotel there uh, where people go and go to play golf from all over the world. But then they had this massive kind of nightclub in there that held like three thousand people that had you know. Um, they had like a, little, like a little bar complex, but then they had these huge barns, these big sheds, and they were having, there was a range of stuff they used to do. They used to have these like kind of UK-focused underground London, Colin Dale, you know, early Paul Oakenfold, you know, um, I mean, Sasha came years, years later, but the, the the stuff they were booking was very much kind of, um, you know, Jeremy Healy was huge. I remember I used to, I used to tout tickets for these shows once I understand, understood what was going on. I used to basically borrow 100 quid from a dad Go and buy a load of tickets in cash from the um, from the office at Kelly's and tell them I was bringing a bus from Liverpool. When why on earth that, would someone be bringing a bus when you had cream <laughs> cream in your doorstep and you had these massive stacks? Why would somebody be bringing a bus to Port Rush for? A, I mean, I, they must have thought this kid's mental. But anyway, um, so I ended up and also the licensing laws over there. You'd end up outside the club at like six in the afternoon or six in the evening. So I, and I used to I used to sell the tickets out the front door of my mum's house. God, she must have hated me. Um, <laughs> But the uh, I used to put posters up in all the telephone boxes. So what would happen is Jeremy Healy would come to town, they'd announce the show, it would spark out straight away, and the tension in the week up to the show for tickets was just mental. So if you had tickets for Jeremy Healy, you were quids in. It was just, it was nuts. But um, but yeah, but the, you know, what was going on in there was you had two, you had one corner of the club, you had kind of Protestant gang members, um, drug dealers, um all sorts of stuff, but I, mean, I obviously wasn't aware of any of this at the time. Really, kind of, you wasn't. It wasn't immediately aware of that's what was going on. But you kind of pieced it together later because we were kids. We were like 15, 16, 17 years old. Mm. You, know, you know, my mum didn't know I was going to this place. So, and then on the other side was was the Catholic factions of whatever. And of course, we kind of had a bit of an idea of who the dodgy people were to watch out for and whatever. But that was like a super rare situation in that you would never see Catholics and Protestants really mixing together like that you just wouldn't um and then obviously the cult- there wasn't there wasn't trouble at all at oh no there was definitely plenty of trouble um over the years and various things but that was more to do with i think it was definitely you know gang stuff that happened away from the club or whatever and that was probably over. Like- that's what that's what i mean i mean i, I mean like in, inside the party there wasn't no i don't ever remember any 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 trouble inside the party there was definitely lots of drugs raids and definitely lots of stuff like that going on but um and eventually they, they had to change they had to change the tune a bit and stuff, but they kind of went through a phase of doing, they switched from doing the very cool London orientated kind of cool house music stuff um, because the, the the kind of Scottish happy hardcore, harder sound, trance, or not, it's not even trance, but that kind of um, hardcore, Scottish hardcore. That's yeah, it. yeah, no, I remember it. Yeah, it's, it's funny because there was a, your QFXs um, it was a Scottish hardcore thing, wasn't there, which is very much in of itself. But all those rave PAs, like, you know, your enjoys and, you know, all that, that kind of tackle, that was very much um, what was what was popular because this, I think there was a big connection between the Northern Irish scenes and Northern Scot- Scot- the Scottish music that was popular there. So 
the, the, the cooler music kind of got squeezed out over the years and then these mental mega, you know, hardcore raves kind of took over. And I wasn't really into that, but we kind of had our, we'd wet our whistle at that point in terms of... So, so let, let me just, let me just clarify, what kind of years are we talking about here? So when, when you said those things first started, first started and you first started going to them, what, what year was that? 90, 92, 93, 94, 95, 96. Okay. And then sort of mid, so 95, 96, the kind of harder stuff started taking over, I, I gather. Yeah. Right? So, right? yeah. So what happened was then they had this little room called the garage. And at that point we were kind of, you know, we've been going out for a few years. So we always thought we were a bit cooler than these younger kids that were coming through. So we were hanging out in this other room called the garage, and that was um, they had this girl in there called Joanne, and they were booking that they were playing kind of more New York house music, um, soulful. You know, there was all that kind of um, brand new heavies, uh, you know, Morales remixes, and that 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 kind of stuff. It was a bit more vocal and a bit kind of cooler. Well, we thought it was cooler anyway, and that was kind of coming through. So that kind of that that was quite good because it was it was just a better scene in there. It was more balanced. It wasn't a load of lads with their tops off punch in the air it was kind of you know it was comfortable for the girl you know girls to come out and have a lovely time and that that kind of really caught us really when we were young and then by the time we met Andy Carroll from Cream in there one night which is it's another story but um Andy kind of opened the doors for us in Liverpool and when we came to university in Liverpool he was like you know took us to Cream introduced us to everyone and that um at that point was that they were still playing lots of you know there was lots of great stuff happening at that point so that that was that was the kind of transition from port rush to to liverpool but right and you and and you actually you went to union in liverpool didn't went you went to union liverpool yeah but but just back just back to your point on the you know did that culture affect yeah 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 we were moving towards the period where the good friday agreement was signed and the idea that there could ever have been peace I mean, it just was so unobtainable and so <laughs> unlikely yeah just just to, just to put it in a little bit of concept for people who who maybe aren't aware um like the sort of late 80s early 90s was really as almost as bad as it got for the troubles weren't it i mean particularly like the, the 80s were just an appalling period and then to have got to 97 and having having a sort of you know having some kind of like real resolution to it was pretty amazing so yeah just yeah go on yeah so there's a bunch of key things happened around that, that point i mean actually i'm, I'm from gray steel Originally, and fortunately, Graystead is only really known for um, in the in the in the kind of you know if you Google it on the internet um, was a massive gun massacre um, on Halloween, which was a, a massive tragedy. Um, and then simultaneously, well, shortly around that, there was also the Shankill Road bomb uh, and the Oma the Oma bomb. I think they all happened around the same same year. I think it was, and they were the they were the incidents that really. They were the straw, that was the straw that broke the camel's back, really. I think the people had had enough. But at that point, from our perspective, all of a sudden we had this massive network of mixed, a mixed group of friends, which was not something that we would ever have had, do you mean? And it was all to do with clubs. It was all to do with music. And that was the common denominator. Whether you were Protestant or Catholic or anything else didn't really, didn't really matter to us because we had our own little crew. We were doing our own thing. And music was the, music was the, the common factor. Um, and yeah, it, it definitely softened. You, you had these these nutters that'd be out there killing each other all week, and being Kelly's at the weekend, hugging each other off the reds, and <laughs> yeah. that that was like, what? What is going on here? Yeah, I mean, it's like this the stereotypical thing of like the hooligans coming down off the terraces, but just like just magnified that much more, right? It's- that 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 is exactly 
it, you've just nailed it right. Those two things happened in parallel. The, the effect of club culture on the hooligans in the UK and football, that whole terrorist thing, happened in parallel. The two things happened yeah. at exactly the same time in exactly the same way. That's it. It's pretty amazing that we can look back on it now and you know and, and appreciate that and, and actually identify it pretty clearly. And then when you think about um, you know how the government viewed the advent of ecstasy because it really is ecstasy what we're talking about here obviously the music was was key too but i mean ecstasy is a played a key role in all of this and it unquestionably had a positive social effect it's got to be said no no i'd agree um i i completely agree um and that the, the 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 i think the results were tangible in that and and you got to bear in mind i didn't take drugs so i was watching it all um, I was watching it all from the dance floor and, and seeing these things happen. I was like, what? this is mental. I just couldn't. But then it, it was until years later, I was able to go, well, ah, this is what, this is what's going on. Right. Okay. This is why all these, this is why these people are react, relating to each other in such a way. <laughs> it was like, it was like, oh, right. Okay. Right. Wow. Mad. And, and good. Ultimately. I mean, I, actually let's, I mean, just, just staying on this topic for, for a moment. I mean, how do you see, like what's, I mean, obviously you don't live in Northern Ireland anymore, but like, how do you see the way it's developed in more recent times with the whole Brexit thing and all that? Is it is it slipping back into dangerous waters, do you think? Like a series of kind of scrambled Rubik's Cubes. You know I mean, it's just like, I just, I actually, I've, I've, I have lost touch with it a bit, but, I, you know, the, the stuff on the protocol I'm not tuned in on. But in terms of, you know, where people are at. I mean, Northern Ireland, well, Ireland in general has had a terrible time through the pandemic and the the, the relative, the relative, you know, licence and laws and things for, for for what we do is it's everyone's kind of in the dark ages. But in terms of trouble, I think you're all, you're never that far away from something kicking off and there's definitely still huge factions that are, you know, armed and ready to go. But look at what's happened with, you know, the look at what happens, look, you know, look at what's happened politically, I think, there's been a huge shift to the centre now, and even someone like you know, for 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 a party like Sinn Féin to to have the success that they've had in um, in Northern Ireland, it's because yeah, they just won the election, haven't they? Well, yeah, yeah, which is which is unprecedented for them, really. But I think the um, the focus is really for any any party over there now is is housing for the youth, you know, um, and economic issues and jobs and the things that really matter really that are going to kickstart the economy and that that's that's really what's important and that's what every that's what the people the people who've been successful that's what they're focusing on um and i think brexit has played into their hands also because you know the dup have been i don't know how i've ended up talking the dup on here but anyway um <laughs> no, 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 it's fine. I I'd last. I've just done a. I did a. Sorry, let me just interrupt you to say that I r- recorded a, a podcast earlier this week, and I think it's going to come out after this one, so I won't say who it was. But we did a full hour on European politics, so that's completely fine for this show to be talking about. Right. Well, I mean, I'm I'm I'm, I'm no expert, and I've lived in England now for 25 years, so <laughs> discount anything I've said. But um, I definitely think that Brexit has played into um uh played into the hands of the people who are more interested in having a United Ireland, for sure. Um, and I think right. the DUP have shown themselves up. It's funny because you kind of look across the world and you see these kind of like bigoted extremists all over the place. You know, you look at America and you look at Trump voters and then, you, you know, you look at all these different characters all over the world and then and then you see the DUP and they're like, they're like something from um, a Margaret Atwood novel. I mean, it's just like, 
you know, yeah. they're just they're just ridiculous. And you know, the levels of corruption and chaos that that's kind of below all that. It's just it's just mental. But you know, I guess it's on both sides. But yeah, the DUP have always stuck out for me as being particularly crazy. But I mean, what you said about their um. You know what you said about the economic development side of it really underpins all of it. You know, I think it's it's true for so many parts of the world that experience problems. Like if you fix the economic issues, then a lot of it's going to go away. I think is the bottom. Yeah, line. I mean, I, look, I think that you know, I'll get you know, the reason I left Northern Ireland in '96 or wherever it was was I was trying to get to work, and the the um, I had this little job in a restaurant, and um, the drum cree marching season had started and basically it had got really, really out of control. Um, and this is the point where it had got very publicised in the UK. And um, I remember trying to drive to work and all of our entire little town had been closed off by masked men. Um, and, you know, the police weren't doing anything about this. They couldn't control it. So masked men had basically, you know, sectioned off the bridge, which was allowing me to get to work. And I was like... I had a roll down my window, and they're like, where are you going? I'm going to Korean. No, you're not. You need to turn around. And I'm like, right, okay. So I just can't, I can't even go to work. Like, all I want to do is go and work in this bloody restaurant. But there's no point in me going to work in the restaurant because there was no one that was leaving their houses because all of the all of the towns across most of the most of the North of Ireland were kind of sectioned off by these kind of massed nutters. Wow. What, so what year was that? 94, 95, 96, somewhere in that, somewhere in that period. Right, yeah, yeah, but it, yeah. But for me, I thought, well, what the fuck am I doing living here? This is absolutely mental. And, like, this whole problem that's been going on all this time, that these guys can yeah, just jump I mean, on the streets, the- stop you getting to work, and it's just the police, no one's doing anything about it. It's like, well, what is there here? I mean, that's another problem they've got in the north and the south is, because of the, the economic problems, is is immigration, you know, and particularly through COVID, everyone just fucked off. Like, fuck this. Yeah. Well, that's been an issue in Ireland for a couple of hundred years, right? So for for various different reasons. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, um, let's let's draw a line under, under Irish politics, interesting though it is. So we, uh, we touched upon your eventual move to Liverpool to go to uni. And which is basically where your career as a promoter started, I believe. Although I think maybe you dip your toe in the water already prior to that. Yeah, I did a lot of stuff in Port. I did. I was booking all the kind of Wallace Sound tackle in Port Rush because there was a lot, it was kind of yes. a surfing town and breaks were big. So we see lots of the freestylers and any, anyone who was on Wallace Sound because there was a connection there through like Derek Delarge's family. All right, okay. there, his, yeah. his he's from that neck of the woods, so. There was a connection, and we could ring these guys up, and they'd go, "Oh, Derek's from there, yeah, yeah." yeah. They'd all get on the plane and come over. Bentley Rhythm Ace was the first one I did, and that smashed it. And I thought, "Oh, this is all right. This isn't it." This right. This is this is the uh, the sort of big beat sound. So yeah, as terrible as that name yeah. always was. Right? I know, I know, I know. Kind of pre Chemical Brothers really kicking off, but I mean, I mean, I spent a very interesting twenty four hours with with um, the Bentley Rhythm Ace boys in Portrush. That was quite the eye opener as to what might be going on in the in the greater outside world. But um. In, in what way? In what way? Well, they were just absolutely mental. Like they were just, <laughs> I mean, they just turned up completely smashed and got even more smashed. And then, <laughs> and then proceeded, to, like, I took them for dinner. I mean, I was like 17 or 18 years old, whatever. I borrowed my dad's car to pick them up from the airport. And there was just these two lunatics who just could not be controlled. And everywhere I took them, they caused absolute pandemonium. <laughs> and then by the time we got to doing the actual gig, they were so obliterated they were like ordering these these jugs of um kind of um, 
multicolored vodkas and whatever, like these huge jugs of it, and they were just chinning them. And like, and then they were getting their own bottles of vodka and pouring vodka into the vodka. Um, and then, and they were like, you know, just playing like reggae versions of the Coronation Street theme, theme tune, and it was just like, oh my god. But yeah, anyway, so that that was that was a fun time for me actually. But I mean, I had some terrible shows there. I did a show with Paul Bleasdale. Actually, it was meant to be Graham Park. Um, and Graham cancelled because of the Oma bomb. And uh, Paul stepped in, and one person turned up. It was, I was sleeping on the sofa, and there was one person at the, at the gig. And Paul Bleasdale still had a shock. So we had some great, great gigs, and we had some terrible, terrible shows there. But then, yeah, so I, basically through Andy Carroll, I, when I got into Liverpool, I started doing um, student parties. Um, started student parties at um, a place called Baraka on Lime Street, which was just like an old. It wasn't like it was like a Whitbread pub that had decided it wanted to be a nightclub. We did some great shows in there. I had a, my best friend was a guy called Luke Carr. Luke, who, who was a Shibuki, and then went on to be a Shibuki resident. Is, is one of my, he was like a flatmate of mine at uni. And um, an incredible uh, record collection, vinyl record collection. And also, like, you know, a bunch of kind of scruffy North, Northern Irish guys wearing, like, boot-cut jeans and pointy shoes and checkered shirts and stuff, <laughs> la- landing into Cream Nightclub thinking... Jesus, boys, this is some fucking place. This, you know, like proper country boys. You know, we hadn't got a fucking clue. So hang, hang on. What, what, what year are we in now? 96. 96. Right. So we're kind of land. We're kind of landed into cream. Th- and we're a proper colchies, as they say at home. Like there, we were straight off the boat. And um, so, so hang on a sec. Um, was we haven't talked about Darren yet, who I know is a good mate of yours and has been discussed on this podcast previously um, when we had Mark Broadbent on. So had Darren was Darren still there at that point? He was, wasn't da- he? Darren actually left. I remember getting the phone call and Andy Carroll getting the phone call. He was on tour in Ireland with me doing a tour of Ira- doing Portrush and Derry and Belfast or whatever, and I was touring him around. And him getting the call to say Darren's left. And I remember being in Liverpool. And seeing Darren, you know, Abby in the queue, Cream or whatever, and seeing Darren and his kind of attention to detail, he'd be out and he'd be like watching the queue and what's going on and checking with people. And they obviously had a door picker and then they were like, you know, that you see Darren walking through town in those days. And, you know, this sort of like effortlessly cool bastard. You couldn't, you couldn't fault him. You know, he was just kind of, but it was years later that I actually got to meet him and hang out with him. But, um, the in those days it was Darren and James they were running Cream they were the coolest people in town Cream was a phenomena and everyone kind of I guess it, either wanted to hang out with them be them take them out whatever there was a lot of a lot of jealousy I guess as well at the time I mean at that point Cream really was this this ubiquitous yeah. thing yeah. in in the in the whole of the scene I I I never went to it myself but like you know you couldn't pick up a copy of DJ or, or Mix yeah. Mag or whatever around that time without just seeing that logo all over the yeah, shop. Yeah, they had it absolutely nailed on, you know, from the logo to, you know, the artwork, to the art direction, to the, you know, the lineups, to, you know, they just they just kept banging doors down, you know, from, you know, New Year's Eve, the New Year's Eve stuff they were doing, you know, with the three cities and the jets, and then they were doing cream fields, and then it was Buenos Aires, and then it was this, and it was that. And it was just like, wow, you mean, fuck it, I'll stand back this lot are going for it you know and that was very inspiring I think as um, as a young promoter um, it was kind of it was phenomenal to watch really on. so were they would, would you say that they were the key kind of like influences for you and what you've done generally Dar- Darren certainly was I didn't really meet James until much much later and I ended up working with James mm-hmm. and I used to book Creamfields as well 
with James and Scott. And um, and also, uh, years later, I ended up putting a lot of shows into Cream whenever Cream reopened um, as a venue. Um, we did all the big Shibuku circus gigs there for a long time. And so we've built quite a good relationship with them. But, you know, we've 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 fallen out many times and kissed and made up. And we're kind of in a place now where older and you know we're not we've got we've, we're on very good terms now um and i'm kind of glad that because we spent years of his necks in one form or another but i've got you know i've got i've got a lot of respect for all of them and, and you know if, if you can get in the ring with those guys you can you can get in the ring with anyone they're they're a phenomenal right they're a phenomenal force you know um yeah but da- Dar- darren really darren was very much in the more of the creative tip for me um and and Particularly by the time he, you know, we got to space and was doing the the, the home and then the um, the we love stuff, you know what they were booking in the early years. Certainly some of the later stuff I was a bit a bit skeptical of, but um, some of because I thought they were kind of hanging on to Detroit a bit too long because none of the yeah sh- we um we had a long conversation with Mark Mark yeah. Robin about about all this some of his bookings anyway like he certainly managed to like reinvent it reinvent it a few times over. no definitely but and i also think you know it's a different it was a you know they're appealing to a european audience whereas in you know in liverpool or manchester people had seen those acts and done that thing and whatever but it was kind of and we we you know we loved the music we loved the heritage but there was only so so many times you and the fees used to go up and up but it was just like it became unworkable you know for us I mean, the the fees thing was um, that was a that was something that I uh, followed at afar because that was a kind of key uh, point of the kind of gossip sections of of Mix Mag and whatever. And paying, I don't know, Junior Vasquez or like uh, what's the, what's the name that's um, on the tip of my tongue? Oh god, I'm I'm, I'm blanking on it. But whoever ha- whoever 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 had a D- his own DJ booth built for him as part of part yeah, of the yeah, there was that there was that classic weekend that they brought Junior Vasquez over. Um, Right, actually, Todd Terry was the one I think I was thinking of. Right, no, no, it was Junior had the own booth thing. That was him. That was him. Right, I mean, right, that, right. I mean, if he, I mean, we had, we we were close friends with a guy called Alan Green. He's he's passed away now, unfortunately. But Alan was the production guy at Cream, and he also was the production guy at um, Circus for years. And he went on to work with David Guetta. Um, whenever that through that kind of EDM curve, when production and LED all became mm-hmm. such a big thing, he was kind of in the center of all that. But the stories behind the scenes of like what was going on, you know, with that particular, that junior gig. Um, and when they, they ended up having to double it up with London, um, I think yeah, he did ministry sound the same day or the, or the night before or whatever. And it was just the whole, I mean, basically it didn't sell. They was kind of, they thought it was going to be this, like we're going to land junior Vasquez in, in, um, in the UK. And it's going to be like, you know, the stone roses getting back together. It was just like, didn't happen. And no one cared <laughs> apparently. Yeah. And they just wow. about they just about got away with it with skin in their teeth by all accounts. But <laughs> I mean, I have to say, at the, at the time, I was I remember as a, as a very young man, it has to be said, but scratching my head a little bit, and because I, I, I think he'd done a like a ministry mix CD. I think I'm I'm literally just remembering yeah. this now. But I and I had it, and I remember sticking it on. There was all this hype around Junior Vasquez, and I stuck it on, and it was genuinely one of the most boring things I'd yeah. ever heard in my life at the time. I was just like, this is just not the one, man. Yeah. Like, Having been used to like listening to having you having been used to listen to like Carl Cox Fact One, do you know what I mean? yeah, exactly, like the complete opposite. Although, if you listen back to some of those those ministry compilations now, like the Clavels and Cole one, I was just thinking about this the other day. The Clavels and Cole one, although it's quite short, it's fucking brilliant. And then, have you ever, do you remember the late night sessions one? Have you ever heard the Express Two late night sessions? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I mean, that, that's on the two, the two disc one. I mean, that that was just amazing. But yeah, anyway, yeah, that. But yeah, the fees thing. 
look, Darren was 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 and Cream and Ministry and all the guys that are up there. They're they're a huge part of that that fee culture thing just kicking off, you know, because they were doing more shows, bigger shows. They were legitimizing the business in many respects because, you know, post criminal justice bill, everything moved indoors. And they were in the right place at the right time. Uh, yeah. They were in the right place at the right time to capitalize because there was a market for people wanting to go to clubs and have a good time listening to dance music. But it needed to be, you know, legitimized effectively. So that's what, you know, and I guess the the takings and the revenue was there to be seen and quantified. As opposed, you know, people could look at it and go, well, hang on a minute. Yeah, there's, there's money to be made here. Let, let me ask you about the Criminal Justice Act, actually, because that's something which has come up on a few episodes of this, slightly unexpectedly, actually, I have to say. I wouldn't have thought uh, when I first started doing this that I'd be talking about that particular piece of legislation a lot. But, I mean, having talked about it with like with Deavridge, I talked about it, and also with Mark, and the, the kind of general consensus seems to be that ultimately, I mean, it's actually similar to, you know, what we just said about the government's opposition to, to ecstasy. Like, actually, actually, this attempt by the government to kind of stamp on the rave scene actually was actually like pretty beneficial to the scene overall. Like, how do you see it? Well, I mean, I was living in Ireland at the time, so it didn't affect me greatly because I was, A, probably slightly too young. Uh, and then also, you know, exactly by the time I got to uni here, Super clubs were in full full swing and probably have been for a couple right, of years. It, so it already happened. I, it already happened. So you know, Mark's a bit could be older than me. Sorry, Mark. Um, yeah, you know, he he would have seen that more. He he would have had a better view of that than me. But it was it was definitely it was seen as this really negative thing at the time. I mean, you must have read about it as well. Oh, of course, sure. of course, yeah. Like, you know, I've read, I've read read all about it. I mean, I'm all around it. But um, yeah, it was kind of viewed as a negative thing. But it had, it, it definitely forced and created. Um, you know, it's funny we talked. We talked to Melvin Ben um, at Fast Republic, and you look at some of the stuff he did in terms of like you know those universe raves and when the when you know he was doing some of the first legal ones really, and 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 mm. you know the stories he's got around it are, are unbelievable. But yeah, you're right; it legitimized everything, you know. And you know that's I guess that's what has to happen if. How many? What are the statistics on the numbers of people that were going to legal raves every weekend were absolutely mental, you know? And yeah. you have to think about how unsafe they've got to have been, you know. We think now about what we do, even for a club night, where we've got like a mini hospital built at the back. We've got, you know, all of our security or you know SIA. Everything's like super organised. We've got, you know, if you, next time you come, next time you're in Liverpool and you come to one of our gigs, getting in the front door is like that is no joke. That is like you know it's 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 serious, but it has to be. It has to be because, you know, the things that are out there that can cause problems for for, for for the customers, it has to be left at the door, you know. And particularly knife crime is a major problem everywhere at the minute, particularly in, particularly in the UK. Um, and what we have to do as promoters to protect people is is probably a lot more. I mean, people will never see really all the work that goes on in the background, you know, with all of that stuff. Yeah. And I, that, that, link, that links back into yeah. it. You know, if you've got a bunch of unscrupulous promoters banging up massive mega raves, and you know, if it's not safe, it's not safe. You, you know, you can't really let that go on. Totally. So let so let me ask you. Like more, more recently, obviously during the pandemic, there was a kind of resurgence of the illegal rave. Terrible things happening. Yeah. What was what was your general view of that? Well, I mean, it was. Well, what, what do you expect's going to happen? Do you know what I mean? You, you turn you turn everything off, and kids are going to go and want to, the kids are going to go and want a party. Full stop. Do you know what I mean they don't? And there's there's a 
the whole world of them, they don't really care whether it's legal or not. You know, more legal. They're just like, well, we're going to go out and have fun with their mates. Whatever. That's just going to happen. Do you know what I mean? And for the government to think it wasn't going to happen is pretty stupid. Do you know what I mean? But I'm not. I'm, I'm certainly not condoning it. I mean, some of the stuff that went on was terrible. The there was a big one in Manchester, and there was like a rape, two stabbings. Da da da. It's like what? Like it's yeah. just un- unbelievable. Like unbelievable. Um, but equally, you know, we were living in unprecedented times. You know. All these kids, these kids have all been locked up for for a year. Sun comes out. Of course, they're going to be in the park drinking. Of course, they're going to be. Yeah. You know, it's just it's going to happen, isn't it? But um, yeah, we. You know, there's definitely people that are probably from the more legitimate world. Definitely, you know, sound system companies, whatever. Who've you know probably probably shouldn't have been giving these people sound systems and all the rest of it. But you know, I guess it's money at the end of the day. They obviously got paid very well for it. But you know, I don't, I don't agree with it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, yeah, the, the money thing was key, you know, because so few people got any government support in the UK during that pandemic thing. I mean, I was, you know, been comparing notes with, you know, friends in, in Germany and other parts of Europe who were, you know, supported to like a mind blowing extent when com- in comparison. Really? Anyway. I, didn't, I didn't know that, really. I mean, I kind of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, for example, in, in, in Germany, um, you know, art, quote unquote, artists were paid, you know, well, I mean, I, I know. Of one example, whose name I won't mention, but was you know paid twenty thousand euros for for a year in in twenty twenty, you know directly by the government. So yeah, which made me a little bit salty, frankly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Should have kept that Berlin address. Oh well, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, I mean there, there are there are pros and cons to living in Germany, <laughs> I have to say. So, but anyway, um, back to back to the narrative, as it were. Your move to Liverpool eventually led to, as you mentioned before, starting Chibuku Shake Shake. So, and and that was basically your that's the start of your kind of journey to where you are now, I suppose. In terms of like, obviously there were pre- preliminary steps, but what was the path from from rocking up in Liverpool as a student to starting the Chibuku night? So what happened was when I finished my last exam, I and mean, we'd been hanging out at Cream every week and. Going to, going to parties and I'd been doing my own student parties through through uni with like Andy Carroll and various punters and kind of trying to make some money to pay my student debt off that way and um, uh, Yousef I think or someone had picked me forward for um, there were some international cream jobs actually one was Ayanapa and one was Ibiza working in Amnesia at that point cream was like you know, there's two or three big nights on the island cream was one of them and I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, somebody threw, threw my name in the hat. And I came out my last exam on the day I did my, um, my final exam on my degree. And the phone rang and it was um, someone from Cream basically going, look, um, got you in for an interview. I was like, fine. So I came in and did an interview against like 40 or 50 people. And um, they called me back and said, right, you've um, basically you've got the choice here. You can go to INAP or you can go to, go to Ibiza. And I thought... Ibiza will be mental, be full of people completely off their heads all the time. I'll go to Ayanapa. Yeah, <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, what was I thinking? And, um, and, oh, wow. And, and, no, 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 oh, it's okay. Wow. Get, and they rang back and said, they rang back 10 minutes later and said, actually, the Ayanapa job's gone, gone. So you can have Ibiza. And I was like, <laughs> yeah, right then. <laughs> Whoa, dodged a bullet, li- literally, perhaps. I didn't have 50p to my name. I was literally completely skinned. So I had to throw a party in John Barnes' old pub which is on Harbin Street in Liverpool. And uh, Yousef played. Alex Wolfenden played. You know Alex. 
And, yeah. uh, and this hip hop crew from Liverpool called No Fake and did the upstairs with those like break dancers and whatever. And we basically rammed this pub. And I always remember the, the, the woman I'd hired, because the pub had been closed for years. And uh, the woman who'd opened it up, I'd obviously thought, oh, it's a load of students. They wouldn't have any money to spend or whatever. And her, her getting to like 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock when everyone was in, and she was on right. By the way, I'm jacking all the prices up. She jacked all the fucking bar prices up on us. So everyone was kicking off at this point. I'd, I was like, right, nothing I can do here. This lot were like heavy crew from Toxteth. I'm not going to start arguing with them. So um, that and that basically got enough money from that to get on the plane, buy some flip-flops and get off to Ibiza. But the, we landed in Ibiza and the cream were like, look, here's a million flyers, like paper flyers. You think how much damage we were doing to the environment in Ibiza. You've got these British promoters over, over there with like, trucks full of paper flyers like it just seems so mad now they're like here's a million flyers um there's a villa there's a team here um blah 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 blah. the lineups are booked get on with it basically didn't never been to a beef never been to a beef before didn't speak spanish i think i got out there in like may or something and the first parties were in june and um um, and obviously you know like working for cream i guess darren only shortly left a few years before this was, what, 98-ish? Oh, no, this was 2000. So, um, oh, oh, he must have been gone a while then. But Mark and Sarah had been running. Mark and Sarah um, and Mo Chowdhury, um, who's also passed away now. Mo, they'd all been running cream. That's what I was, yeah, that's, that's where I was trying to fit into. So so did you take over from Mark, basically? No, there was Mark and Sarah and Mo and Ben. And then it was Mark and Sarah. And then um, there was another guy whose name evades me. He was the... In the musical director, uh, Ian Hoskins, that was his name. Ian Hoskins became like the replaced Mark and Sarah when Mark and Sarah went to space with Darren. Or they went to Australia actually. Yeah, they did. Yeah. And then they came back. They came back then to do to do um, to do space on Sundays when, whenever they left home um, in Australia. And then Ian did yeah. it for a bit. And then it was me, Ben King, Brandy Stentyford, and a guy called Adam Presley, um, who was just man as a box of frogs. And we. Just got basically here's amnesia. Get on with it. Um, which so that was that was the baptism of fire. That was like wow. I learned more in that four <laughs> weeks. But just 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 to put it in context though, like that was I, I mean, cream was the biggest night on the island at that point, correct? Without a doubt, yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. So you were just par- basically parachuted in with not a huge amount of prior experience. But, but, but um, ben, 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 ben King knew what he was doing. Ben King knew the knew the ropes. Adam Presley less so. Brian had been there a couple of years, um, and both Ben and Brian spoke brilliant Spanish. Um, and basically, you know, it was every po- you know everything from running the poster teams to getting the flyers out to managing all the the, the, the street stuff to on the night. You know, it just every we should kind of standing back now and looking at it. It was an incredible experience because because you were picking up so much of the ju- the cream juggernaut was flying at that point. And just seeing the way that they operated and how they dealt with things and the scheduling and the advance work and, you know, the logistics of getting all these DJs in and getting them out and, and what happens when the shit hits the fan and, you know, such and such has missed his flight or someone's got hammered and knocked on the flight. You know, this total chaos that was going on at the time. And we had this phenomenal first year, um, really. And, and Are there any are there any like key nights that you can pick out from that from that season? Well, the thing was, obviously, I wasn't. Been, I hated trance music, and the residents were Paul Van Dyke and Tiesto, so that was that was one thing. But but they used to do this. Um, they used to do occasional nights with like Big Boot Boutique with Norman, and they were doing. I think pre subliminal sessions being a big thing at Pasha. They were doing these. They were doing some parties with Eric Murillo, 
And who was the other one they used to do? Bugged Out. They used to do some Bugged Out stuff. So the Bugged Out ones really stood out because Bugged Out in Liverpool at that point was like massive. Uh, and, in, and in Manchester. Um, so so who would who would play at the Bugged Out ones in, in, uh, in a bit? I can't remember. But it, was like, it, was, it was basically, it wasn't trance. So I was quite happy about that. But it was like, <laughs> really like Adam Freeland. But, but what, what, kind of, what, kind of, what kind of DJs are they? Um, it was all much more alternative. I mean, I think Fatboy might have, no, they were, they were boutique nights. I'm trying to think who played the Bugged Out shows. I can't remember. 20, 22 years ago, Paul. <laughs> no, I know, I know, I know. But it was, it was more sort of, um, it, it wasn't really techno, was it? It was, um, I guess it was sort of breaks and kind of electro and that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah, right? yeah. I mean, I think I would imagine Dave Clark must have played because he played all of their stuff back then. Um, and then, yeah, no, I can't remember. I'd have to go, I'd have to have a look. I've got some fires and stuff knocking around. But, um, but then, so we had this phenomenal first year and we basically partied from, we got there till we had this terrible terrible kind of like I left in October and I got back to Liverpool and it was the bleakest winter Liverpool had ever seen and I hadn't I didn't have a penny to my name because we just I think I, I think I had 300 quid or something under my bed and um it was just like disaster just like the depression of leaving Ibiza that was just too much to bear I mean there was points where I thought I'm not actually going to come out of this depression is that bad um, so I kind of calmed down them because we were drinking a lot out there and not sleeping and the, we were just on this mad kind of crusade to get through the summer and whatever we needed to do, we just cracked on basically. And then I basically, I, we did the second summer out there and this is where this shit started to hit the fan was, um, was that the, the, the year one, they'd had all these like massive names there. And in year two, Tiesto wasn't going to play, Van Dyke only did six there was only, you know, the lineups were a lot smaller and nowhere near the blockbuster lineups they've been used to. So we were out there, and I was actually, I think I did most of that year, second year sober, and basically just to kind of try and keep a lid on things because it got well out of control the first year. And um, I was working much, much harder and everything, but the ticket sales, they just weren't there. For such a big night to have a not great year, you know, I was taking a lot of it on quite personally, you know what I mean? And then I remember calling some of the cream guys and like saying, you know, uh, your lineups aren't very good this year. Like we're we're really trying here, but they want to see X, Y, and Z acts. Don't think they liked. I don't think they liked this kid kind of telling them. Oh, <laughs> by the way, your lineups are shit. Um, and there was a few things went down, and basically, you know, I ended up getting sacked, and that was a huge moment for me. In that, I think it's my ego um, at the time, probably because I was young. It was really, it was like twenty-one or something. Could not take the idea of being sacked. I just could not get my head around this. And that really put this fire into me. I was just like, well, fuck you. And came back to Liverpool. Shibuka had done one party at that point, which I'd been to. And Luke Carr and those guys had, um, sorry, uh, Will, Charlene and Demo, sorry, had uh, Wandy playing or whatever their mate. And I managed to shoehorn Luke onto the next show. Basically, it just went off. And as as soon as I went to that gig, I knew, I was like, this is the nucleus that you need. This is the basis of what can be a phenomenal club night. It just needs to be steered, do you know what I mean? And I basically became a partner um, because I'd been in Ibiza, I'd, I'd been working for Cream. I had all these contacts. I knew a lot of DJs. I knew, now I knew the agents. I was kind of, had a, had a, had a basis of kind of, of, of a starting point. And then, although we weren't booking or attempting to book, basically what we didn't want to do was come back to Liverpool and go head to head with Cream because there was no point in that. But also we weren't into what they were booking at that point. So, we started booking the older stuff. We were booking DJ Pierre. We were booking Marshall Jefferson. We went through Chicago and Detroit with a with a fine tooth comb and booked 
you know, we booked Derek May. Ooh. We booked um, all of these other, you know, we booked all of these kind of then techno and house luminaries. Um, and we felt like we've had some phenomenal gigs with Marshall, actually, over the years. Um, and Pierre, I had some amazing conversations with him. Um, he's such an such a amazing character. And and then, basically, I kind of got a bit more freedom with the rest of the, with the, with the other partners. And when it moved from the Lemon Lounge, which is like 200-cap little kind of room above a pub, to the mask, we had this playground of three rooms. And that's when the kind of the years of listening to Giles and the, the years of kind of having a more non-house and techno kind of music interest gave us the opportunity to just go absolutely mental. So, you know, there was nights we were booking... Kenny Dope and DJ Shadow to book, you know, to play all night playing Funk 45s in one room. We'd have John Peel in another room DJing and then we'd have Mr. Scruff upstairs. You know, and that that was just like, oh yeah, we're just doing that tonight. And then we'd have, you know, might have Dillinger in the Valve Sound System in the roof and Tom Middleton in, in the small room, but we might have Jacques Leconte, Stuart Price in the main room. And how, let, let me let me, let me me ask you before you just go on there, like, um, I mean, those are great lineups, but they're pretty adventurous lineups too. So, how was the like? How was the kind of audience reaction to to that? And 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 like, how much of a kind of regular sort of crowd had you built up by that stage? I mean, you mentioned much earlier on that you know you had this thing where had this moment where cream shut and suddenly you found yourselves as kind of the only show in town. But like, how much kind of audience trust? did you have to build up before you really started pushing the boat out like that with those kind of lineups? We kind of tested it a little bit. Um, we obviously, but we had this kind of, we had this crew that this kind of wave of university kids who were all kind of our age um, who were coming and they were, were coming religiously. We'd do one party a month. It would be mental. And it built up over a year, maybe two. And then it really became this challenge. Like, can we get the DJs? Can we book the DJs? I remember like, you know, like, fighting to book Andy C for like 1200 quid or something. It was just seemed like the most mental <laughs> amount of money. And, um, I actually, I, I, I can beat that. I, I booked Andy C in 1996 for 400 quid. Well, there you go. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> looking back at it now, and if, if I look at things in Liverpool, like how the Casimir crew, which is kind of like an underground arts organization, how they evolved and why there was this attraction to them in Liverpool. It was because they were, they were the opposition. They were the, they were the other side to whatever was mainstream. And though we didn't necessarily plant ourselves against cream, we ended up being the opposition. We ended up being the cooler, younger, edgier thing. Um, and I look now at things like, you know, Invisible Wind Factory or, or places like that in Liverpool, which is, again, the Casimir guys, and how it must have viewed other people from outside when they thought, oh, this Shibuki lot have got hold of this Dishu's Theatre. It's a fucking shithole. The toilets don't work. Um, it's sketchy. AF. I mean, it's all over the place. Um, they don't know what they're doing, but it's fucking rammed and it's going off and the vibe's amazing. That kind of encapsulates everything. That really encapsulates, as a young promoter, where you want to be. You don't want to be having some massive £10 million nightclub that's like, you know, yeah. it's like, well, that's not that's not really what you're meant to be doing. That's not your job. Your job is to be creating exciting, interesting parties that go off to underground music. Do you mean? And that's what, that's what we were doing. And I think the DJs that we could book at that point that's what they were about and i think we also we we, we were we were creating the next the post super club culture wave we were on the top of it for some on the we just happened to be there at the right place at the right time and i think fabric opening around the same time i didn't go to fabric for years actually it was too bad we used to work every weekend and then the weekends i had off i didn't want to be in fabric 
But I think that what they were doing musically was obviously in London, you can go really, really left. Do you mean? Do you, do you think that? Let me, let me just let me just ask you about that quickly. Is do you think it's significantly different in London in the way you can do different genres? I mean, we used to look, we used to me and Lewis Boardman sit there, we used to look at these fabric lineups and we're like, who are these fucking people? Like we do this all day long, every day, and we have no idea who's playing in who are these ten people playing in room two? No idea. And we have to go and Google these people. And it wasn't like we were massively removed from dance music culture, but there was a, I think Judy particularly would have had such a freedom to be experimental because hmm. they created a bigger thing. You know, Keith and the whole t- team developed something that was, this was the concept and the ethos behind the whole club was so, that's where they were going. Do you know what I mean? We didn't even, we didn't even have a plan. We were just booking stuff and throwing parties. And, you know, the, the strategy that they landed with was so different that, that yeah, that's what they could do. They were, they were, and, you know, the relationship with Craig over the years and, the way that they brought things through, and it, it was always much more curated, and we weren't we weren't as sophisticated as that, you know, we weren't, but we were booking equally mental lineups, but making it work in Liverpool, which is obviously a very, you know, we were embraced, I think, because it was completely different to everything else that was going on, um, and we also didn't look to alienate people. We were kind of when I was if I was booking hip hop, I'd bring in the no faking guys, go right, but you guys support, and you know, we'll we'll or the drum and bass guys, we work with Future Bound, who was like you know, the local kind of drama based guy who had been promoting his own stuff, but couldn't be bothered now because his DJ career was kicking off. So he could come and play at, you know, a home, good home show. We worked with people. And then that evolved into then people then trying to copy what we were doing. And then people trying to shut us down, you know, people trying to, trying to compete and, and replicate what we were doing. And then that then, that then leads into, you know, all these staff conversations about, DJ exclusivities and Rich won't let such and such play for that club. <laughs> no, oh my god, here we go. Yeah, totally. Let, let me let me let me ask you. Um, obviously, uh, you know it was very successful, extremely successful over time. And you know, as you mentioned previously, gradually it sort of I mean, circus started and and sort of superseded it. But but at, at what point did you start making money out of out of Shibuku? Like, was it was it? Um, I never I never I never made any money out of Shibuku. Right. <laughs> we can't, we, no, I, I, I didn't. I didn't suddenly start. It never actually happened. Um, we but the, the parties, but the parties must have been doing okay, though, right? We, we were we were basically getting through on pennies. Like we were literally. But because, but was that was that just because you were spending all the money on on the on the lineup lineups and the costs and whatever and do you know what I mean and you know if we were if we were coming out with a couple hundred quid in our pocket, literally doing an after party and you know great cool. We weren't we weren't making money, but. You know, I was pulling in other contracts. I was working with Cream on a, on a fee. I was working with different people. I was able to pull in. You know, people were looking at people were looking at what we were doing, going, "This is fucking mental." How do we get some of that? So the, the phone started to ring, and you get offered these jobs, and, and then you know, then the warehouse project started, and then that was kind of that was successful. So we got you know we got paid from the warehouse. So, so what was so so? Let me ask you a follow up question then, which is like, what was your primary motivating factor in doing it? Was it just because it was fun, or was there something else? I knew that if I knew that if I kept doing it at that level, with that level of detail and the the intensity, you know, I used to see, I could see it on the DJs' faces when they used to turn up, and we'd we'd laugh at them because they're like, oh yeah, they'd turn up a bit, kind of like yeah, whatever. And then like 15, 20 minutes in, you'd see them looking at you, going, "Fucking hell, this is absolutely mental in here." <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And 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 that that kind of like here we go. And you'd always have sometimes I'd just have a little shot with the DJ, going, "Yeah, all right, I'll pick you up at the end of your set." And um, I think the 
knowing that we had we had that kind of it was like a white heat at the club. It was so intense that at some point something was going to happen. I don't know what it was, but something was going to come out of it. And eventually, lots of great things came out of came out of that. Um, but we also never pushed it to really make money. We could have done lots of things that would have, we could, you know, we could have done lots of things to capitalize on it, and we could have completely taken the mic. But when you have something, when you're given something that pure and that kind of like, well, we've kind of got this that energy and in something you don't want it, you don't want to you don't want to rinse it you don't want to you don't want to ruin it you don't want to be the guy that's gonna and now he's selling mugs or you know now we've got a merchandise <laughs> stall or it's like you know that was the thing that was the thing with cream wasn't it because they managed to do that in quite a tasteful way i thought they did they did yeah they did but that was like part of their culture we just didn't see it as well we're not going to start selling fucking t-shirts do you mean it's like be ridiculous yeah wasn't i mean, I mean it's funny now because you know, we sell merch at the warehouse. We sell merch across loads of things, and it's totally normal. But at that point, obviously, we were also grossly disorganised, Paul. You know, we weren't. I mean, I remember, remember Will, Will from Shibuku. It was almost like that New Order cover thing, you know, at Factory Records. I think Will ordered some Shibuku t-shirts. I think they cost us a quid every time we sold one, or whatever. It was. I mean, it was, there was there was loads of that going on, and we also had problems with like we got hit in a ticket touts um, scam. Which cost us yeah. thirty or forty grand. That was, you know, we got absolutely rinsed by that, and we ended up getting. Ooh, a... How did that? How did that? How did that work? Well, I got a phone call from Creamfields one day saying, "Hey, we, basically, we were trying to work out a way of Will going full time, and we all had different. You know, we all had other jobs. You know, Will was stuffing envelopes somewhere, and I was doing something menial somewhere, and we were all kind of just trying to make ends meet." And um, we worked out, we were selling all these tickets. And I'm like, well, if we, if we keep the booking fees and we sell the tickets, then that'll create X amount a week and Will can live on that. And that was great. So we opened this little ticket booth at, um, at the at Mask and um, we started selling tickets. And we were selling tickets for other clubs and we were selling tickets for our gigs and other gigs at the venue. And it was kind of ticking along all right. But it meant Will was stuck in this cupboard, literally um, at the club in the dark for seven hours a day. And, um, and then that was that. And then... One day, Creamfields rang up and said, "Hey, we've got um, got tickets here for Creamfields. Do you want to sell some? It's, it's a five pound booking fee." And we thought, "Oh, that's brilliant! It was great news. Fuck, we're getting we're getting a pound on the club tickets or something stupid." So we said, "Yeah," and and we took the tickets. And then obviously, the ticket touts nationally are probably quite organised, so they've kind of, "Oh, what's this new outlet that's appeared on the Cream promotion?" Because they used to list all the in the old days. You'd have like, "Here's your lineup," and here's fifty paper ticket outlets across the country. So they were like, oh, who were this lot? Mm, what are they up to? They obviously realised we were children who'd been let loose with the nightclub. And um, they decided, came must have come in and had a nosy and realised that this is our first PDQ machine. Hadn't got a clue how any of this stuff worked. And then the phone started ringing. And we just thought, well, Creamfields is massive. So, you know, this is just what happens at this level. So um, the phone started ringing. It's like, right, eight tickets, post them here. Nine tickets, post them there. Eight tickets, seven tickets, five tickets. And so we we're thinking, five quid a ticket? Fuck, you know. We're absolutely smashing it here. And that didn't stop from, oh, God, well, the, you know, April till August or something. Will was, um, Will was off running, um, Shibuku, the name, comes from an, an African drink from Malawi. And Will, when the club, although the club was successful, Will believed that, you know, he was using the name, even though it's owned by... Um, Anhouse Bush or Miller Anhouse, wherever it is, who's owned by one of the big breweries. He was like, we should do something charitable in Malawi just to say, you know, we've used the name. We're going to do something of merit for you guys. And I was like, cool, off you go. No problem. Whatever you want to do, well, cool. 
So Will set up a, a charity festival called Lake of Stars out there and off he went and he got some funding and he got some like money from the Labour government and blah, 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 blah. And ended up running a load of basically used the festival as a mechanism to generate a bunch of like internships and stuff. So like DJ Yoda played it and Annie Mac played it. So he was off doing that and it was kind of like a side thing for him and he still does stuff like that now, but he'd gone to run the festival, but obviously I had to stay and promote all the shows and someone had to be in the UK. Um, and then these letters started piling up and the bank account was in Will's name in those days. And uh, I just thought to myself, well, I'm here grafting and Will's off having a lovely time in Africa. So I'll leave all that post for him. Why should I be going through all the, the post while, you know, that's his job to do all this yeah. tedious admin. I didn't open a single one. So this had been going on for like a month or six weeks. All of a sudden I was like, I better open one of these. See what I open up it was like one of these we've taken the money back from your bank account details, blah blah blah. And um basically the bank were just taking the money, the transaction cost and the booking fee out of our bank. And oh. Will had also oh. taken Will Will had also taken the fob with him to Africa, so I couldn't even get on the freaking bank to see what was going on. And I think at one point and we'd also I mean it, basically I think it would end up like forty five grand's worth of tickets. Or something. Wait, hang on a sec. They were they were taking money from from you. The money would go into our bank account. No, no, no. So what happened was, what happened was, we saw the ticket. We posted the ticket out. Fine, but it's going to a dodgy address. We didn't right. know. We just thought these were just punters' addresses, but they were like safe houses or whatever or black addresses that these organised touts have. And um, so, that, so I didn't know anything. And then what happened? Then like you have cream fields, or like a month after people have, you know, a month after their credit card statement, um, they go, oh, hang on a minute, I didn't. I didn't order these cream food tickets. They ring up and they go to the bank and go, hey, I didn't order these and you're insured. So they get the money back. But the way they get the money oh, back yeah, is so it's a the, thing, right? yeah. the bank comes and takes the money out of my bank account. So what happens wow. is I get hit for the money. The ticket types have got the tickets in their hands. So they then sell them for cash. And I used to always wonder, how do these ticket types get their hands on tickets and sell them below face value? Like, how do they do that? Couldn't work it out. All of a sudden, I'm in the middle of it. So then what happened was, so, okay, so... So think about this. The touts have got the cash. I've had all the money taken off me. And then I've got all this outlay of like this summer, this winter run of shows to happen. So I've got like had Della Soul and Dizzy Rascal and Tony DJ, all these people coming and all these tickets being sold. But I couldn't get access to the incoming ticket money until the show, until the shows in those days. So we were kind of relying on these five pounds to keep the lights on um, from every ticket. And then James from Cream rang up and goes, great, we had a great show at Cream last week, brilliant. Can I have all the ticket money, please? And at this point, like, I've already, I've had the police in, I've frozen the bank account, we're trying to work out the fuck's going on. HSBC, we took all our evidence to HSBC, they lost all the evidence. It was just like, oh my fucking God. And luckily James, you know, James was like, right, he believed us because we were able to prove, you know, this is what's happened. I mean, that's the kind of thing that put you out of business, right? Yeah, and someone's deliberately targeted us at that point to go right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna take we're gonna smash these kids up, and this is how we're gonna do it. And yeah, but luckily James said, "Look, well, you're gonna need to pay the money off, but put, you know, put a plan together and stick to it and pay it off." And basically, we then went into the most successful run of shows that we'd ever had at that venue, and every single penny that we made went back to paying off the Creamfields debt. Um, <laughs> and I got to Christmas, and I was absolutely in pieces, and had about again three hundred quid in my pocket. <laughs> and and, and I, I remember handing Tony um, Barton, James's brother, who's passed away, and he was a good man of ours, and uh, giving him the last check to like, you know, there's the last, that's the last of the debt. I remember just thinking, fuck. I mean, that was that was painful. That was painful. 
That sounds extraordinarily painful, to be honest. I mean, if it makes you any feel better, my Andy C booking for 400 quid ended in a massive disaster as well. And it was when I was at uni, I ended up paying off the debt for the whole summer. So I'm um, not quite to the same extent that, that you had it. But um, I certainly feel feel the pain of the uh, the, the promoter who um, whose plans don't go to plan. Nothing went to, not, nothing day, really went right? to plan on those days. We made a lot of, lot of mistakes very early, thank God, that, that, that stood us stead in the future, you know, so... Okay, so we're pushing on a bit. We haven't really talked about Warehouse Project and a lot of people okay. listening to this are going to be wanting us to talk about Warehouse Project. Cool. So um, maybe you can give us the uh, give us the lowdown. It's moved, throughout, moved to various venues throughout its history and it's had a similar sort of... Um, a similar sort of approach to bookings in the sense that um, it's been very ahead of the game. It's like very early supporter of a dubstep sound... I, I, that's how I first came into contact with it, even though it wasn't me that got booked, actually, nudge, nudge. Um, but, but you guys were certainly uh, supporting it from, from very early on. So, like, just tell me about it generally, how it started, and then, and then maybe we can talk about some specific memorable nights. So, Sasha and Sam, Sa- Sasha Lord, who you might recognise from Sky News these days, um, he um, has been promoting in, Long- in, in, in Manchester forever and was doing a lot of student nights and things whatever and he basically decided to be a good idea to open reopen Sankey's with Dave Vincent um, many 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 years ago and Dave knew Sam Candle um, who's involved in the warehouse now and Sam came to work for Dave and Sam would help with bookings and running the club and whatever and was basically um, on the on the front on the cut on the coal face of that particular club and then as as Dave and Dave and Sasha's relationship broke down over the years. Um, Sasha's a very straight character in terms of how he lives his life. Um, and it's very, you know, everything's to the book. And Dave's, Dave's Dave, if you know Dave. And basically... Um, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I know him a bit. Some of the people listening to this may, may know him, but he's legendarily... Um, I don't know what the right word is. In the Maybe that's not used a word. Dave's Dave. Yeah, Dave, 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 Dave's not very well at the minute, so I'm, I'm not. You know, I'm not going to say say anything negative about him. But um, Dave was also, you know, a very creative promoter, a very talented booker. You know, and 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 and, and, and had some really amazing moments and stuff that he's done. But Sasha and Dave in the same room is like a really hilarious, like idea. Just the idea that these two would be business <laughs> partners still makes me laugh today. But anyway. They all, they all kind of split up. Sankis was, was kind of whatever. Sam left. But, this, you know, b- b- before that, we'd, you know, Sam and I would be talking about, you know, sharing bookings. You some you know, you'd have Eric Murillo or Green Velvet or DJ, DJ Sneak was always the one who was up for multiple bookings. You know, he'd come in and he'd play Manchester early and Liverpool late or whatever. And then he'd go and do another show in Glasgow on the Sunday. So we'd always have this kind of like, open relationship on, hey, I'm trying to bring this guy over, you know, and we have the same relationship with Fabric and Damien Eston in Birmingham and all these other promoters all over the country. You just have this network of people you can share talent with and bring in little tours of international people. So me and me and Sam were dealing with everyone. And then um, Sasha left uh, after the, the big tribal gathering show that we did. And Sasha was basically going to get into property or do something else. He really, he'd had enough really at that point. Um, but Sam um, is is a lifer like myself. He just he's you know he's just completely obsessed um, by dance music uh, in in all its forms. 
and obsessed with lineups, obsessed with building amazing lineups, obsessed with everything, you know, everything that goes into that. And um, his mum will tell you stories about him, uh, you know, doing like fantasy, fantasy kind of football DJ lineups when he was like 13, 14, but based on what he picked up on Hacienda Flyers or whatever. So then it's literally, he's just, he's just obsessed with lineups um, and also possesses a very innate kind of skill as a promoter in that I, I've kind of got my way of working and I work with a lot of other bookers and people and other things. And sometimes it works very, very well. Like me and Yousef have got a good relationship and we, we work well together and he'll see one thing and I'll see another. And Sam's got his way of working. And when Sam does his things on his own, great and he did great, great careers, you know, at Sankey's and whatever. Um, but when we work together, there's something else that happens in that, in that kind of relationship. And it's, um, I don't know, but we, we, we're kind of, we, we like a lot of stuff that's similar, but we're both got our own interests in different areas, I guess. So, but when that relationship came together at the start of that whole process, so post the travel gathering gig, basically they came to see me one day and said, look, we're, we're, we've got this idea. Um, it came to me in Liverpool. We've got this idea. We're going to, we're going to do um, a series of show, like a run of these travel gathering type parties that we, that we, um, in that big warehouse, which was very rough. It was a very rough warehouse. And we're going to do like 30 of them. And I was like, you're absolutely off your head. Like, how do you think that's going to work? And they, said, and they were basically like, well, thing is, we've been running Sankey's all these years and you can make it work between September and January, September and December, and then you spend the rest of the year giving the money away because you'll end up losing shows or this will happen or that. So, so basically, they were like, well, it'll work in the winter and then it won't work, you know, it won't work the rest of the year. So I was like, oh, right, okay. And they didn't have a venue, but basically me and Sam went to Manchester one day, sorry, sorry, to London, and we actually showed the agents what was a blagged picture of a random warehouse, this kind of edgy-looking warehouse, and we were like... We had, our, we had ends with two or three big warehouses that we were looking at. Um, Sasha was dealing with all that stuff, but me and Sam were kind of, like, thinking about the talent. And in this one day in, in, in London, we basically went to see, you know... Birchwood and David Levy and all these big agents and you know Tara, uh, Sasha used to have um, Sasha the DJ used to have Tara at Accession his own agency and all of them were like fuck this is brilliant we're on board we're like what we're like yeah we're in what do you need and we're like oh okay and everyone we went to was just kind of like we're up for this let's do it so we basically came back from that one trip and that gave us the impetus to go right we're, we're going to go for it we're going to absolutely go for it and then that first year so what was the first year? So the warehouse party, it was 2006, yeah. Um, and then basically, you know, we, we kind of, we kind of, the first, the first act was Public Enemy. Um, and I remember walking in there and it just being like, the sign wasn't particularly good for the live acts, but I remember like the first thing I saw was Flavor Flav like placing his multiple clocks on his neck or whatever he was. <laughs> and that was like, that was my first image. And I think the second image... That's a pretty good way to start, isn't it? Really? The, the, the second image was Marky e. Smith from The Fall punching some, <laughs> punching some guy and getting, <laughs> and getting launched out the front door. Obviously, a famously belligerent character, but that was like, oh, right, okay. But he, he just fucking lumped someone and then got carried out the front door. So I was like, oh, this is, this is going to be fun. And then um, we're walking around the building with... Um, Sam just thinking, what the fuck are we up to? And it just went fucking mental. Like, we sold phenomenal amount of tickets um back then and 
but we were booking like, you know, like the Claxons played, but like Lauren, I remember Lauren Garnier playing for us on New Year's Day and it just been nuts. Like we'd never done a New Year's Day party before and Lauren playing on New Year's Day was like a big thing. Too many DJs at that point were the biggest thing since sliced bread. So they, they did Radio Soulwax there. Um, but we did, you know, we did like big te- mental techno nights. I remember one night booking Switch and Switch turning up and just like the usual chaos with, with um, Dave. And obviously you just had that sound. And I remember at that time that felt Switch like... Switch was massive at one point, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. I, really I just remember that, you know, that sound of his records, that kind of like, I don't know how to describe it, but he used to turn up with like two CDs, put the CDs in, play... 20 tracks he's just made in the fucking studio, obliterate the place, and then just get a bottle of vodka and disappear. And um, and that kind of, it was just, that was definitely, you know, Annie, the, Annie played, did all did, did one of her very, very Annie, um, Annie Mac Presents shows there. It was one of the first, in fact, if you look back, I think she did like Room 3 at Fabric, and then we did this show in Manchester, it's like four and a half thousand people. Do you know what I mean? It was like, because yeah. we were just booking these bills so heavily and, but it was all, it was kind of one room with a smaller room. And the, the second room, I never really, I never really kind of got much of a vibe in there. But we did do the three chairs in there with like um, Moody Man and Theo Parrish and all those guys. I remember we were really stressed out because we're paying a lot of money for these these guys. And it was a very headsy thing to be doing in, in Manchester. And no, no one, the booking agent, no one had heard from Kenny. It was just like, right, it's booked, it's advertised, it's sold the tickets. But we hadn't had an advance. We'd sent money to the agent, but the agent said he hadn't passed it on. She hadn't passed it on because she hadn't heard from him. And it was like, oh fuck, he's not going to turn up because he was notorious. You know I mean, and he's, and he, you know what Kenny's like? He's just kind of does his own thing all the time. And um, and then on the night of the show, like Sam's like flipping, like he's the fuck. We've had nothing. He's not going to make it. Is he? He's not coming. And on the night, he just turned up like five minutes before his set with like a rock, rock sack, just like, hey guys, what's up, yo? Starts playing, and we were just like, <laughs> as promoters, we're just like... Well, we stuck with some girl combing his hair probably in too, or something. Exactly, do you know what I mean? But it was like, as promoters, we were like, we're going to have to give away, we're going to have to refund everyone because Kenny's not turned up, and we're going we're, we're gonna to lose an absolute fortune. And he just rocked in last minute, just dead cool. All right, lads. But um, yeah, so, so after... After... Uh, after we did one year Boddington's and then Boddington's got demolished. And then we, we did a little Easter tester at uh, called beneath the streets, which was a weekend run of shows over Easter at what became store street. Well, store street, the venue, which is, it was, we were, we were there for years. So that and was store Street's the car park, right? store, store street, the car park, which was, the, you know, purpose built, purpose built rave center. Like it was just, something else and, and and like you know bringing the dj I used to walk the djs from the malmaison over to this like little box in a car park and you'd open you'd open the it looked like a it looked like a a power a kind of like a um some sort of like power uh, they're housing some sort of like uh like a pylon or something in there not a pylon that's not the word you know what i'm talking about and um yeah, it's like a little building site. I mean, I have done that walk more than once. Yeah, and yeah. You're like, is this what, what's what's going on? What's here? Going on? And you basically you'd, you'd open the door, and you'd have this little spiral staircase, or this down 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 into like this basement. And the DJs be looking at them, what the fuck's on? And then you'd walk through this fucking, and they're just like, what the fuck is this? And there's like two thousand, two and a half thousand people that are going absolutely berserk, and it was just that feeling of when someone hadn't been there before, um, and it was just it was just a phenomenal space, but. You know, we went through all the usual things that you have in nightclubs, but I think what people don't really remember is that post-Hacienda in Manchester, it was very difficult to run nightclubs. 
you know, and I think the work that was done at Store Street in terms of Sasha's work with the council, in terms of integrating the police into, you when, know. Wait, yeah, so when, when you say difficult to run, you mean sort of administratively, I guess? No, I mean, I mean, gangs, I mean, security problems. Oh, oh right, oh, right, okay. So like just the, uh, the, the those sides, those sorts of things. The council post-Hacienda were, you know, it was called, it was that Gunchester period where, Right. You know, all of those problems had bubbled over and it created a massive problem for the city in general, you know, and the 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 ripple effects of all that had had kind of slightly settled down. But, you know, Sasha doesn't really get enough credit for the work that was done in that 10 year period, kind of post, you know, well, bit of Sankey's and then into warehouse where he integrated the authorities, you know, and the use of, um, you know, starting with security with the front door, taking control of that situation to involve in the police right through to, you know, the drug testing stuff that we did um, through to all the, you know, just, it just instead of it's us and them, it really became everyone together. Um, and the, the relationships with the authorities became much, much closer. And there was nothing was hidden from anyone. It was kind of, it wasn't like, Oh, this is happening down here. And you're, we'll send you a letter about it this week. It was all like, they were very much involved from the off. And that I think, yeah, it's, it's, it's funny you say that because, I mean, Mark, Mark said something similar about um, the way Darren worked in Liverpool in integrating the, the, the police and the authorities in, in, um, in an attempt to make the whole thing uh, like safer and always just, I mean, just, just make the whole thing a lot more sort of legitimate. Like it's, it, I mean, it's, it's such an important thing, I think. So, so, so is the kind of relationship with the, um, with the local authorities pretty good now i mean obviously like andy burnham is the is the mayor of manchester these days and he's obviously quite high profile um so is it seen as being a sort of like is, is the relationship there seen as being pretty positive we're not we're not we're not impervious to criticism and we're not we're not infallible to making mistakes do you mean it's as simple as that and if the, if the shit hits the fan we're, we've got to put our hands up we're not protected by in any stretch of the imagination from any kind of scrutiny but the way that we operate is is we operate at a very high level, do you mean? But we do that by interacting with the police and changing things and tweaking things and, you know, and that's... And we have an incredible production company that we work with. Um, there's a guy called John Drape in Manchester who's a phenomenal part of of Manchester and the events and things that happen in Manchester and, and his vision over the last 20 years to make things happen from a park life and warehouse perspective, but also lots of other things he's been involved in. Um, and the things that he's delivered for the city, he's a complete one-off. You know, he's a complete one-off and a huge part of all the stuff we do, I think. But he and Sasha and all those people, you know, they, they pushed all those boundaries and 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 kind of just kept going, kept like, how can we make these things better? And it's all stuff that's in the background and no one ever really sees, you know. So, yeah, so that, that was a huge part of, like, you know, that run at Store Street in those years. And I remember, you know, from a musical perspective, looking at the, um, you know, looking at the range of the shows, we got this call one day and David Gatter wanted to do, to do to do it and we were like, um, not sure about this at all. Hang on a minute. Um, and then Aphex Twin wanted to do it. And we were like, well, if you can book Aphex Twin, then you can kind of book David Gatter because... <laughs> you mean one balances the other out? One one balances the other out. It's like the people that are going to absolutely annihilate you for booking David Gatter are going to be absolutely ecstatic that you've booked Aphex Twin. So... We booked AFX Twin and then we booked David Gatter. But the but the pushing the boundaries of what was what was because we were very, you know, it was quite very headsy and, and we were only kind of operating within the kind of realms of what we knew as promoters. 
But then we had to step outside that. Um, and I guess, I guess dubstep, as you say, is a very good example. I remember doing, I remember Tony Vegas from the Scratch Perverts ringing me and saying, I've seen this kid. He's like 16, 17, East London, and somewhere in fucking, it was like, well, I can't remember, some, some venue somewhere, playing in a pub. He goes, he plays the most aggressive fucking music you have ever heard. And I was like, what? <laughs> and um, he's like, telling you. I said, it's, I, I goes, it's called dubstep. I was like, you have to get on this kid. And the kid was screaming. And anyway, I booked him off the bat, just Tony hooked it up. And he came and played in room three at the mask in the little bar room which had a little sound system and it was kind of, you know, like a 150 cap or whatever. And I remember standing in at the, at the back of corner of the room watching, I mean, he'd been to Fabric the night before, hadn't been to bed, classic Ollie. I mean, just rolled into Liverpool. It was, it was like a circus. There's the total carnage of all these nutters arriving at once. <laughs> but there had been a massive response to the booking and this room was absolutely stuffed. And learning how that music worked and visualising how it worked. And often, because you can hear these things, you can you can go on Spotify and listen to me, but until you're in front of a crowd, until you see how the crowd reacts to the music, and more importantly, what parts of the music they react to. Yeah, I mean, that early dubstep stuff particularly had to be experienced, like, in that context, right? Yeah, and, um, and actually, I didn't even find the music that aggressive, to be honest, but the there's obviously, you know, as it went on, the genre got more gnarly, but the stuff he was playing then, I didn't. Well, I think it, I think it was just the physicality of that music. Like when you hear when you hear that early dub stuff on a, on a, on a system which is appropriate to it, it is just like it's like getting pummeled. You know? Yeah, it's, it's like, like yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's it's physical in that respect. So really, I mean, that moment was like wow, okay. And then I then we did this thing where we booked Banga at the height of the Koki record kind of moment. Um, we booked him before. I think it was Derek May or someone. It was somebody mental like that. And that was the kind of thing we were doing at Shibuki quite a lot. We were just throwing these cultures together in a really weird manner to get a reaction to people and kind of, and then also we're, you know, hoping that these people would kind of meld together and Derek would go, oh, who the fuck's this guy, right? Maybe we should be doing something, you know, trying to create little situations, do you mean? But Benga, by the time that, by the time we booked him, I mean, I remember, I can, I can visualise now him playing that big Koki record in the main room at Cream at Nation and the fucking walls nearly coming in. It was just like, what the fuck is this? Do you, do you mean Spongebob or Knight? Knight. Do you mean the, the, Knight, yeah, the one he did, the Benga and Koki track, right? Yeah. But that must have happened in like the March and then the Werrush project was coming in September. The Shibuki birthday would have been in March, and the whereas, so we would have been building the Warehouse project at that point. And there was obviously, you know, they were obviously yeah. playing little clubs in Manchester, or wherever. But it was just like, right, this is going to be fucking massive. But also, we had a huge amount of learning to do as promoters in terms of the culture and the context, and making it look look and feel authentic, and make sure that we weren't disrespecting anyone. And also not just running away with it for the sake of running away for it. We needed all needed to kind of get behind it. And we, yeah, basically we were able to mix elements, you know, through like nights that Sam, Sam started Ape in Manchester. And through nights like Ape, you were able to weave, weave the dubstep stuff in with hip hop and drum and bass um, to the more student mainstream crowds as you could, you could kind of weave it in there. And then that kind of built, but they were getting such massive responses everywhere. Um, even, you know, when they were getting 500 quid, you know, and it just kind of, it just escalated. And, and then we, and then it just took off. But I mean, 
we were involved in helping put together some of the first Magnetic Man. You know, like their, their touring stuff, we put together some of the money to pay for the lights. And, you know, we, 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 had, the, we had the platform through Park Life to kind of position these guys as headliners in arenas. And, yeah, it was, it was, it was a mad ride, but, you know... Have you, let me, let me ask you, have you ever brought any of the North American dubstep guys over? Specifically? Uh, I'm, 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 I'm thinking of like Datsik, Excision, Skrillex, that sort of code. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Sonny, Skrillex, we've got an amazing relationship with. Um, Excision will have done at some point. Datsik, I don't think we have done, but I mean, we've got an amazing relationship. We did a thing with randomly, a, we did Fortet, Skrillex and Peggy Goo on a lineup with Fortet last year. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, that's more recently. Though. I mean, Skrillex has sort of transcended the genre uh, since then, but I'm thinking in that kind of 2010 to 12 kind of period, maybe. But I think um, back then, yeah, we, we were on Skrillex there because his agent, Simon was a really good friend of ours um, and we, we, he was kind of alerting us to it really, really early. But I still also think that the American thing was much gnarlier Oh, yeah. than, than, than we, would have been, we would have been up for, I think. A lot of it was really yeah, it was terror. not up my straw, so I have to say I've been on record <laughs> saying it, definitely. But also, I guess, in the UK, you had that proper dub culture. So you had, you know, the Malas and the, you know, you had all the forward stuff and then you had, you know, you had the cultures behind those scenes as well that you could reference and, and delve into. And obviously, I, I remember specifically being in bed one night in Liverpool and waking up in the middle of the night could not get back to sleep and I thought fuck it I'm going to put I'm going to put the music I'm going to put some music on the radio and I'd woken up at the exact moment that Marianne Hobbs was doing that Dub Wars oh, no, really. classic wow. broadcast like wow, I'd literally wow, woken wow. up and thought oh and I remember sitting there thinking this music is fucking mental yeah is it like Vec, Vexed or something like, oh god there was so much great stuff then but, she, so she, but that but that broadcast that she did ended up being like seminal for the whole genre like that oh, that kick- oh it completely was it completely was it, it was it was largely responsible i think for the entirety of that scene blowing up 100 percent, yeah 100 percent. so and i'd managed to catch that and then listen back to it and i was like right okay this is helping me build a much better picture of what's going on and then obviously we were going to clubs and hanging out and and we developed i mean ollie's like a brother to us i mean we've known him and worked with him a very long time i'm, I'm danny um but but also all of those other guys. I mean, Roscoe obviously went to America. Um, we did a lot of stuff with him very early. Um, but he obviously became huge in America. And it was very difficult to get him back, you know. And then I think when things moved forward after that, he, he, he kind of didn't really have the UK. I mean, he had the UK crowd by the by the neck at one point, you know. And then he, he kind of... Yeah, he signed to Mad Decent, didn't he? And then um, I think he had his head turned a little bit, perhaps, in a way which was... Um, which yeah, kind of I guess neglected the home market. Yeah, but but, but 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 also if you think about it, if you can hit a big in America and and that's what you want to do, then go and do it. You know. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, you know, absolutely. If you had that opportunity, then then you know, then why not have a go at it for sure. But I guess that's a good, that's a good, that's a good example. I guess overall as kind of like you know different. That's happened. That's happened over the years of loads of different things. But that's a good one that you can kind of look at and go. We were able to we were able to provide, um, you know, a proper a proper platform for this thing coming through and take it take it up to scale, you know. I'm not, I'm not saying we're responsible for for dubstep, no, but um I absolutely played a part though. It, sure. it it definitely was a key. You know, if you think about that, that that tonight record, the big tonight record, when that when we went to Victoria Warehouse after after Store Street for a while. Yeah, that was that was the first time I played for you guys and that was a great venue as well to be honest too actually. I loved it in there. That that moment when 
that Tonight record, that drop. What was the record called? Can I remember now? Night, Night. It's called Night. Oh, there you go. Um, when that record dropped and it went viral, that's what sold all the tickets for the season because every ba- <laughs> every every base show we had just went boom done. It was just like people just wanted to be at those parties, and it just it just went nuts. Move, I guess moving forward, so we were at Victoria for a bit, and that was an interesting period in our lives, which I'll move forward from. And then um, we went to went back to Store Street for a bit because we've been working on Mayfield Depot. Since then, we've been working on that venue since then for a long, long time. And then um, through one thing or another, we couldn't get in. We couldn't really, there was a lot of partners involved and we couldn't um, couldn't make it all work. Um, it wasn't, the timing wasn't right. So we went back to Store Street, not against our will, but we went back to Store Street, Store Street having said that when we left, that, that was what they were the last parties. But we were kind of stuck where we need to continue and we haven't got the venue we really, really want. So people still love Store Street, so let's, let's do it. And we'd do it, and it was amazing, but it was definitely, we knew there was a hotel built on top of it, and um, we used to have to hire out three floors of the hotel every week for every gig, and then resell the rooms to punters because the hotel said there was, like, noise issues, but there wasn't actually really any noise issues to worry about, but they were using it as a good excuse to get a lot of rooms sold every week. And um, that was a huge task, just selling all these bloody hotel rooms for every gig and quite stressful for everyone. So Store Street became harder and harder to run, also given that we used to build the place every weekend, which people kind of forget, that we used to go in there on a Friday afternoon, build everything for Friday night, run the shows till, you know, 3, 4 a.m. Sunday night, and then the full handball team would come in, dismantle everything, and the place was a car park again on a Monday. Which, if you think about it, spending, what, 10 years of your life doing that is pretty mental. Mm. You know what I mean? So when we left, we were very, very sad to leave Store Street. Um, and we've got some incredible memories of, of that venue. You know, from Aphex playing there to, you know, I've got four members of Charles Peterson doing some some voodoo level things in there with like a Radiohead record one night. It was quite entertaining to, you know... Just, just it's too, too many, too many to to, to list. You know, R- Ricardo Villalobos and, and Raresh back to back was something that stands out. When you just get one of those moments when two DJs are just in it together. Do you know what I mean? At a, at a moment in time, LCD Sound System. We did a run of live shows with them. We did New Order in there. Um, we did MIA in there. We've done like some phenomenal stuff in there that should never have happened in a venue of that size, but we got away with it. Yeah, the LCD shows were fantastic fantastic yeah i mean it's just a extremely important part of the for uk landscape i think really at this point it has been for for a long time now and you know respect to all of you for for pulling it off and continuing to like, keep it fresh really you know well i guess that's but, um, that's the problem we've got isn't it is, is 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 keeping it fresh and we understand that and that's at the forefront of our minds when we sit down to book things i think is that how do, how do we how do we do that? How do we, how do we, and there's a lot of talent that plays every year, you know, but it's, it's how do you represent things in a way that's, it's interesting. I guess new talent's the key to that. Do you mean? Well, listen, man, thank you so much for doing this. This has been really, really great. Thank you. No worries. Um, good to catch up with you. Feels like I've just been for a, for a, I should have had a pint or something. No, it's been great. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, that was Rich McGuinness. And so many interesting things in that conversation. I have to say, my mind was 
Mine was blown a little bit by what he was saying about the effects of club culture and ecstasy on the the troubles in Northern Ireland. That is just not something I'd ever really considered before. And as someone of Irish descent, it really, really resonated with me um, quite a lot. As someone who's, you know, who's basically spent my life around club culture and been a, a taker of ecstasy for for quite a few years, shall we say. Um, it's just great to hear that it had that that effect, which was so positive, you know, contrary to what the you know, the authorities were painting the whole thing as at the time, which was just appalling and just so short-sighted and just so dumb. Anyway, thanks to Rich for that. It was it was great, great episode, exactly what I want on this podcast. Um, and I hope you got as much out of it as I did. So just before we go, thanks to everyone supporting my collab track with Bakongo, aka Roska, which came out last Friday, the 27th. It's called Over Again. And lots of people been uh, been playing it, been asking me about it, been supporting it. So thank you so much for that. I've got more new music coming in the next few weeks. Quite a lot of new music, in fact. Finally feeling happy again in the studio. It's taken me a few years, to be honest, to get to where I am now. Maybe even 10 years, I've got to say. But we're finally in a place where I feel I can properly express myself again. And it's a great feeling, I have to say. So, um, yeah, more fruits of that endeavour to come very soon. But this week on Hot Flush Affiliated Labels, we have the next release from BM6 on Who Whom. He debuted with us back in January. I think it was January or maybe early Feb. Uh, with his Liminal Trek EP, which is just really cool techno. I mean, Who Whom is our little techno offshoot enigmatic techno offshoot and bm6 is just a super talented guy from italy living in berlin but he's from italy and he just makes great tunes and so we've got a two-part ep coming in quick succession so the first one is uh sydney slash roads two tracks out this friday the 3rd of june hotflush.bandcamp.com and uh, on streaming services too. And then the full EP will be out later in June, which is five tracks in total. So yeah, that's that's it release-wise from us. I mentioned at the top, I've been thinking a bit more about how we're going to do the financial side of this pod going forward. I'm minded to do Patreon, I have to say. I, I said last week that I, I didn't want to paywall this podcast, and I definitely don't. And I've been thinking about different potential sort of like you know bits of bonus content that we can make a patreon worthwhile you know past just people who are you know willing to chuck in a couple of quid each week or each month rather to support the show and i'm sure there are quite a few of you who'd be willing to do that but i want to give you something a little bit more so i've been thinking about potential extra podcasts maybe one or two extra podcasts a month and i'd be interested to know your suggestions um, for what those podcasts might be. So hotflushrecordings.com slash discords if you want to get involved in the discussion on that or just hit me on Twitter at Scuba Official. I'd be really interested to know what you think, what you think would be valuable. I mean, of course, we'll have like some kind of uh, members forum within the Discord once we get the Patreon, if that's what it is, or some equivalent once we get it rolling. And maybe we can have some stuff like, you know, voting on 
uh, like topics of podcasts, maybe not guests, but like the kind of topics that we want to discuss on the show. I'd be interested in maybe in, in doing that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I'm just interested in, in getting your opinions on that. So yeah, hit me up in Discord or on Twitter and, and let me know what you think. That'd be really useful. So yeah, I think we're done here for this week. As I mentioned at the top, we've got another great episode coming next week. Coming thick and fast every Tuesday. So um, I'll be done with this, I guess. So this has been great. Thanks to Rich McGuinness for a great conversation. And I'll check you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.